Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Bator of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today we are talking about the third episode in our villain series, covering all of the creepiest people in Deep Space Nine. And boy, is there a lot of them. (laughs) The entire series is villains. (laughs) Yeah, we watched, what, 21 episodes for this podcast, Ashlyn? In a week. Very proud of us, because in the past we've had to split 21 episodes in between two podcasts. But no, we are persevering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I say that we're persevering because we are both going through a lot of life changes. I've been talking about that I just moved across the country. I am chilling here in Virginia and I am in temporary housing right now because my husband and I decided to buy a house, which is awesome. But that means we have to stay in an extended stay hotel (laughs) until the house closes. So... It's been very interesting living with a partial kitchen, but hey, at least we have a kitchen. Because before we were eating ramen every night, which is delicious, but ultimately like not great for your health. Yeah, not sustainable. Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) And we're not eating that top ramen. I just don't want you to think that. We're eating that good shin black ramen. Anyway, yeah. So we're living in temporary housing and Rihanna just moved yesterday to a different part of Chicago. Literally only two blocks away, but you know. So my girlfriend and I are moving in together, so it's very exciting. Woo! We are, yeah, we just spent a whole day moving, and now we're back doing the pod. So I just want to thank you all for hanging in there, for giving us this time and space we need to do our life stuff before we can do the pod stuff. I know it's been kind of a dry spell. We just released our Next Generation episode last week, but that took a little while. So thank you so much for just being patient. Yeah, seriously. It makes us so excited because there were comments from people asking us when we were coming back, which made us feel so excited that people were missing us while we were on our little baby hiatus Mm -hmm. and also made us just excited to get back and talking about villains. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And Ashlyn, what did you think about the breadth of Deep Space Nine villains that we are going to talk about in this episode? Well, I mean, like I said, with Next Generation, every series, the villains get more and more complex and especially because Deep Space Nine is not a standalone setup with DS9 like not so much like TNG where you can just watch episode after episode and there's no continuity mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine is definitely a continuous story and so as our main characters grow and change our villains are absolutely growing and changing and Ooh. becoming scarier by the moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my god there was a lot of really scary villains in this series and it's something I admire so much about Deep Space Nine and why it's one of my favorite shows is because of the continuity and because these villains really do adapt to the environment that they're in as much as our main characters, our beloved crew does. Absolutely. And our villains are given the opportunity to show every single side of them in all these different episodes. There's a couple episodes where we get to start seeing the Jem'Hadar from a different perspective, and Golduka, and Kai Wen, and I'm just lucky that we get to see all of these characters from 360 degrees. Yes, absolutely. 
So before yeah. we kick off our episode, we have the all-important question. Ashlyn, which villain would you run away with if you could run away with any Deep Space Nine villain in the entire series, and why? Okay, I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Rihanna, when we made our series list, we also included organizations. So yeah. I'm wondering if this includes, like, can I join an evil organization? Absolutely. Or do I just have to run away with a specific character? No, you can join whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to become a part of the Dominion, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm actually going to join the Maquis. Okay. Yeah, because I feel really bad that the Federation left them behind and... I think that I would also want to defend my land, and it would definitely be a cause that I would be willing to take up arms against and uh, fight the Cardassians for my land, because I want to farm where I want to farm. Gosh dang it. (laughs) Yeah, it's really unfair that they were not given the time and respect from the Federation. I really get that, and I can't wait to talk about that episode. Yes, me too. Okay, so Rihanna, who are you going to run away with or join? Okay, you're going to laugh at me, but I would love to run away with and start a new community with the Gem Hadar in Hippocratic Oath, who... <laughs> what? <laughs> listen, listen, listen. He's free of Ketracel White. He is trying to liberate his brothers. And... Uh-huh. It's very honorable. I feel like this is sort of a slave race we're talking about. Literally, the Jem'Hadar were bred to be warmongers, essentially. And so this guy broke free from that and is like enlightened and liberated. And I would really be on board with that. I'd be like, you know what? You are trying to break from the mold and I want to help you. And if I were also Jem'Hadar, I'd be like, okay, free me from this white. Let's go. And then we would just hang out on that planet or try to run away together. So, you know, I feel like it would be really great. Okay, but I just (laughs) want to remind you that they're not going to live that long. Like, I don't care. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cool that there's a Jem'Hadar who breaks the mold. I love that. And I would really, I'm really inspired by him. He's like got a whole new attitude on life. Yeah, he really does. <laughs> I love your answer. I did not expect that. Okay, no. Rihanna is running away with a gem hadar. <laughs> okay. Never thought I'd hear those words, but you know, anything's possible in life. <laughs> yeah, never say never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. your answer is really great, Ashlyn. I definitely should run away with the Maquis, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I was heavily considering Section 31. Oh, okay, um, Ashlyn. Let's unpack that a little. (laughs) (laughs) You want to channel your Giorgio energy? Is that why? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Period. That's the only reason. (laughs) Before we get into the incredible Dominion terrifying you know, war section of the Deep Space Nine series. First, we want to talk about someone who's just as scary and just as important. Wait, wait, no. (laughs) Okay, I really like your intro, but I have to read the episode. Oh yeah, tell us. (laughs) Tell us, Ashlyn, what did we watch this week? Okay, so I'm going to read the character that we watched and then the episodes we watched for. I'm sorry, I should just put them in episode order, but guys, like, it's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. (laughs) This is how we planned it, so you get to see insight into how we organized this episode. Okay, yeah, but this is not the order that we're talking about them in. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I just want to be super clear with everybody. So, okay, for Gold Ducat, we talked about things past 
Covenant, The Changing Face of Evil, What You Leave Behind, which is, of course, the finale. So Ooh. just get ready to die. Yep. For Wayun 4, 5, and 6. And 7. We talk, and 7. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, we talked about the episodes To the Death, A Time to Stand, and Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. For the Changeling Lady slash the Founders, we watched Behind the Lines. For Jem'Hadar and the Dominion, we watched the Jem'Hadar, Hippocratic Oath, Rocks and Shoals. For the Romulan Ambassador, who says, It's, it's a, a fake! <laughs> we watched In the Pale Moonlight, which you should have known what if you're a deep deep fan <laughs> if you're a deep space nine fan you should know actually oh, wow you really just <laughs> yep yep you did it yep for kai win we watched in the hands of the prophets the circle and the siege for brunt oh yes we're talking about brunt we watched family business for the orion syndicate we saw honor among thieves the maquis the maquis part one and two and for section 31 slash Sloan, we watched the Inquisition. So Woo. there's so many villains. Like this is different from Next Generation where we have a lot of minor villains like Moriarty who don't really contribute to the main plot of the show. Every single one of these villains are essential to the continuation of DS9. Okay, now that I'm thinking, maybe not Brunt, but... <laughs> I was just going to say, I think Brunt is the most essential because it's Jeffrey Combs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Rihanna, I also, before we start, um, I want you to talk a little bit about the villain journey that you went on and uh, some of the research that you did for these episodes. Yeah, so I did a lot of digging into how many times we can talk about Jeffrey Combs, mostly. <laughs> yes. I mean, of course, I did other villain research, like the best Gold Ducat episodes, the best ones for the Gem Hadar, and thank you to Reddit for helping me find the best Gem Hadar episodes because I had a lot of ones to choose from and I couldn't decide. So it was very helpful to some subreddit pages for helping me. But anyway, we wanted to talk about Jeffrey Combs really a lot. And so this is great because in this actual series, we get to talk about both Wyoon and Brunt, FCA. So it's really great that he is such an integral part of Deep Space Nine. And of course, later on in Enterprise, we get to talk about Shran. And unfortunately, the other people he plays aren't super villainous and not up to the caliber of these three villains that we're going to be talking about in our villain series. But I also did a lot of background research into the craziness that goes on with Wyoon. And so when we get to that section on Wyoon and on the Vorta, I will tell you all I learned because there's a lot of interesting information about it. Yes. Yes. We're just mostly pumped to talk about five Jeffreys for the price of one. Literally, <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be fantastic. And of course, to start that, we're going to start with Brunt FCA. Oh, okay. So there are a lot of Brunt episodes and we watched Family Business because he's in it the most. Mm -hmm. But Brunt is a Ferengi who works for the Ferengi Commerce Authority. And he is first introduced in this episode, Family Business, because Ishka, AKA Moogie, Woo. has been making money, which is illegal on Ferenginar. Mm -hmm. How dare women make money? That is ridiculous. Yeah, so crazy. Yeah. And so he comes into Quark's bar and he shuts it down because of Ishka making money. And so Ram and Quark have to travel back to Franginar and deal with the situation. And Brunt just is so 
annoying. <laughs> oh my god. He is the perfect amount of annoying that I love so much because it's Jeffrey Combs and because he is just the sort of epitome of the Ferengi toxicity. <laughs> like I wrote down in my notes that Brunt is only interested in the patriarchy and profit. And that is it. You know, I mean, literally, he does not care that Ishka has made so much money. I mean, luckily, he doesn't know how much money she's made. But he doesn't care that she's got the lobes for profit. He does not care about these women on Franganar. He only cares that they follow the law, which is that they can't wear clothes, they can't leave the planet, and they can't make money. And I think that Brunt is a brilliant example of the problems with Franganar and the social issues that Rom deals with later when he becomes Nagus and all of this other stuff. So I think it's a really great way to show an antithesis of someone like Rom or Nog who are breaking the mold of Franganar. While Quark sort of straddles the line, Quark is this law-abiding to the Ferengi laws, but of course not law-abiding to maybe Federation or Odo standards. <laughs> so I just really appreciate that about Brud, even though he's so annoying. It makes sense why he's so annoying is because Ferengi society is pretty annoying at least especially from a woman's perspective yeah and brunt really reminds me of the ferengis that i don't know also i have to look up what is the plural of ferengi is it ferengis <laughs> i think so ferengi Fer- it doesn't sound right <laughs> <laughs> that's a good ferengi like oh, no. yeah is it like a squad of ferengi <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I don't know maybe like a a business like a, of Ferengi. That's what it would be called. <laughs> a business? I love it. I love it. Okay, well, Brunt to me reminds me of the business Ferengi that we met in Next Generation. Like when we were first introduced to the Ferengi, they were portrayed as just people who just didn't care about rules, only cared about money, very 2D characters. And that's exactly how I think about Brunt. Also, he's someone that you love to hate, though, because yeah. in different episodes after Family Business, he comes back for like a couple minutes and he's always trying to get Quark. And it's kind of a rivalry that they develop throughout the series. And so it's really fun to see Quark get all flustered because Quark is kind of the master of his domain, especially on DS9. Mm-hmm. And so to see somebody who is above him rain down these regulations is really frustrating for him. Yeah, absolutely. I will push back a little and say that I think Brunt follows the laws that he believes in. Like, he definitely doesn't follow Federation standard laws, but no Ferengi really do. They don't fall into that sort of category. I won't say no Ferengi because, again, like I said, Rom and Nog are exceptions to this stereotype, or they are not a part of the stereotype because stereotypes are often wrong. It reminds me of that Lower Decks episode where Mariner sees the Ferengi and Boimler thinks he's sketchy and all of that stuff. So I think that Brunt is so law-abiding on Franganar that it's frustrating for Quark because Quark understands the laws and he appreciates them he learned all the rules of acquisition way before rom did and that's what moogie says is she says rom learned them but you get them like you and i understand them back to front and i think brunt absolutely does too and so it's kind of annoying i think because they're sort of similar in that way where they are so uptight and they really want to hold the laws of franganar to the t that it can be really frustrating when a f- member of your own family starts earning money when they're not supposed to because then Quark is like, 
this is literally the laws that I've been trying to uphold since I was a child learning the rules of acquisition. And so I think Brent really is similar to Quark in that way. And that's what makes him such a fun adversary for Quark because of course he's always out to get him and he's using the law to do it. He's using what Quark loves most about Ferenganar, which is the rules and the regulations and stuff that sort of keep Ferenganar great again, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we really, we really got there. Um, <laughs> Rihanna, thank you for unpacking Brunt. That was a very apt description. I also just want to add in, like, I have nothing to add. That was amazing. Thank you. But I do want to add <laughs> that I love being reminded how different Ferengi culture is from the Federation because when Quark is trying to figure out in the beginning of the episode why his bar is getting shut down, Brunt is like being silent until Quark pays him for every little bit of information. He's like, well, what rule did I break? And Brunt's just like, hmm, you would need a handbook to know that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so he has to pay for the handbook. He has to pay to know that it's Moogie breaking the rules. And, And also then once we're on Ferenginar, we see that again when Quark goes to the office to try to talk to Brunt and say, okay, I'm turning in my Moogie. I'm going to sign a confession. Once he gets to the authority commerce, he has to pay three strips of latinum to sit down. It's seven strips of latinum to ride the elevator. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) And even to stand, it's like one strip of latinum. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the whole time they're bartering because it was three strips to sit, one strip to stand, and then Quark is like, fine, can I pay two strips to sit? You know, so like they're always bartering and it's a part of that culture that Quark admires so much. Well, and I can tell that Brunt really loves his job because he gets to go around making sure that people are following the rules and then getting paid out the wazoo for just giving people basic information. Literally. I mean, Quark asks, oh, how did you get into the FCA? And he's like, oh, I was kissing up to the boss and I spent the right amount of money and all of this stuff. He's like, the normal way you'd climb the ladder. (laughs) I always weirdly cheer a little bit when I see him in an episode because again it's Combs I love Combs but also I completely agree I love the antagonistic back and forth we get between Brunt and Quark and every time he comes on I'm kind of like okay we know it's gonna be an interesting episode we know we're gonna get a lot of fun chaos going on here yeah absolutely well and the way this episode ends opens a door to more Brunt episodes because Rom is the one who settles the differences because Quark and Moogie have been fighting this whole episode because Quark is mad that she's earning money mm-hmm. and Moogie's mad that she's not allowed to earn money. Yeah. And Rom lies and tells Quark that Moogie's going to share it and then tells Moogie that she can keep it all. And so also we realize that Quark hasn't even found all of the money. He thinks he found all of it, but she made even more. And so they end up paying Brunt a very small fee because he thinks that Moogie's only made like a couple strips of latinum. They end up paying a third of what she earned, which is still something that Quark could never pay back in his lifetime with his current profit standings, which is just crazy the amount of money that Moogie made. (laughs) I'm so impressed. I like, can I have the lobes for business? Because that sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Seriously. (laughs) Again, I'm just going to shout out to Combs because when I see this episode after directly watching the Wyoon episodes, 
it is just stunning to me how flawlessly he fits into another character and a completely different character. Brunt cannot be more different than the Yoons or than someone like Shran. I think that that is the brilliance of Jeffrey Combs is that I truly didn't even recognize him as Brunt when I first saw this. And then I only could tell when it says guest starring Jeffrey Combs, you know, and, and then the whole room cheers. <laughs> so, yeah. Jeffrey Combs. You did it. Congratulations. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen the Bo Burnham special, you are missing out. But he doesn't sing about Jeffrey Combs. I think he should. <laughs> he should. He's better than Jeffrey Bezos. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that... As much as I'd love to talk about Brunt all day, I think we should move on to the famed Section 31. Yes. So this is going to be kind of a fun section because this is the first time in our villain series that we have been able to talk about an organization being the villain. And so we're going to cover Section 31, the Maquis, and the Orion Syndicate in this section. I'm just excited to talk about that because all of these are groups that we will end up talking about in series upcoming. <laughs> you know, we Literally. got Voyager, we got Discovery, we got like e- everything. Enterprise, so, yeah, there's so yeah. many that mention this. Yeah, yeah. so we thought we would set it up because Deep Space Nine introduced so, introduces so many amazing and villainous organizations in this show. This so. is something else Ooh. that is so brilliant about Deep Space Nine is that every time I was looking up, okay, when does the Orion Syndicate show up? Okay, but what about the Maquis? I thought the Maquis maybe started in Next Gen, or I thought at least Section 31 started in Next Gen, but literally all of these organizations have an origin in Deep Space Nine, and it shows how much the writers were thinking about building these worlds and building conflict. It's really cool that they are starting to talk about the cracks in Starfleet because this is not something that was ever discussed really in The Next Generation or of course the original series because maybe there was a little bit of the sort of admiral BS that we get in The Next Generation which we'll see in Deep Space Nine and everything else to follow where the Admiral C is sort of out of touch with the people who are out in the field but I think for the most part, we see a Starfleet that is very ideal. And in Deep Space Nine, we're starting to see that no, especially during war times, this is not the case. And there are these sacrifices that have to be made. We'll be talking about in the pale moonlight. So I just am really glad that Deep Space Nine took that leap because it gave room for shows like Picard and for Discovery and everything you were just talking about, Ashlyn. I'm very excited to talk about Section 31. I think that this is such a cool and terrifying organization. Yes, and this episode is also cool and terrifying. (laughs) Yes, oh my god. This is another one where a villain, we're just going to call him that, it makes great use of a holodeck, which is also (laughs) what we saw. Like, I think he saw the Moriarty episode and he was like, oh, I have to do that to Bashir. Yeah, okay. Sloane kidnaps Bashir while he's asleep, beams him onto a holodeck without any sort of transporter trace or very little transporter trace, and doesn't alert anyone, including Bashir. I don't know how you wouldn't wake up after having been transported, your atoms scattered, but maybe if you're so used to being transported, it's just like another daily thing. It's like brushing your teeth, time to go in the transporter kind of thing. But anyway, this is genius and terrifying that they can do something like that to someone 
who is a senior officer. I mean, he's the CMO. He has a very important position on the station and medical would kind of fall apart without Bashir. So the fact that he they were able to kidnap him without him even realizing and put him on a holodeck simulation, it's really terrifying. Yeah. And also the accuracy to which most of the characters were programmed in the holodeck is also terrifying because Sloan is the Section 31 liaison that we're dealing with in this episode. And he's a couple of cronies that yeah. shuffle Bashir around the station. <laughs> he must have a full workup of every single person, especially the senior officers on DS9, because he, for the most part, is extremely accurate. Just to give a little bit of background, this episode, Bashir is supposed to be on his way to a medical conference. And so before he goes, like Rihanna was saying, he gets beamed aboard. But the rest of the DS9 crew thinks that he's gone on the trip (laughs) the entire time. And so they don't even know that something is wrong. But Sloan in the simulation, which that's his name, Sloan, Mm -hmm. he says that he believes that there's a leak aboard DS9, and so he's conducting interviews. And so from Bashir's perspective, he is interviewing all of the senior officers and asking them questions. And Bashir seemingly has a super easy interview with him. Sloan is really kind towards him and very complimentary. And then Bashir goes back to his quarters and O'Brien does a secret calm to him and says, hey, watch out, Sloan's on to you. He just grilled me for two hours about you. And we have to remember that this is all a simulation. Mm-hmm. As soon as Sloan steps on to the ship is when it begins. Because I was really confused about that. I was like, when did this start? What yeah. is happening? Then it's revealed that Sloan believes that Bashir is the spy. And not just like a normal spy, but he believes that Bashir, because he's genetically enhanced, has the mental capabilities to block away a part of himself inside of his mind that Bashir is able to repress than he wouldn't be able to know about when he's in his waking hours. Sloan's reasoning behind this is because Bashir was captured with Martok and he thinks that Bashir was broken and became a accidental spy to the Jem'Hadar while he was captured. But it's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) It's not true. Absolutely. The episodes that Ashlyn mentioned where Bashir is kidnapped is in Purgatory Shadow and by Inferno's Light. So that two-parter where he gets kidnapped, there was a changeling who replaced Bashir and Bashir had actually been captured and put in solitary and all of these horrible things happened to him and Martog and Garrick's father, Tane. But anyway, this is a couple seasons ago. And so it's interesting to me that Section 31 has got tabs on Bashir and that they're looking out for people who have circumstances like Bashir. And I'm wondering how many other Starfleet officers who maybe were POWs were questioned like this in the same manner, or how many people they had tabs on and just used a convenient holodeck to question them. And I also, I have a question. Do you think that Quark just gave them hollow sweet time because Quark can be bought pretty easily? Do you think that Section 31 just went through him? How do you think they were able to reserve the hollow sweet for that long? Or were they on their own ship using their own holodeck? I don't really know. I was wondering this too, and I assume that they would not want any traces of their presence on DS9. And so I think they had their own cloaked ship Mm -hmm. around DS9 or even further away because we know that the Dominion has transports, like the transponders that can go really far away. I would not be surprised if 
They had transponders. I mean, we don't see Bashir with one, but I don't know. I would not be surprised if they had the ability to transport much further than regular transporters could go. So that ship could have been anywhere. I just really think it's not likely that they would have taken a hollow suite from DS9. That's what I was thinking too, because I'm like, those hollow suites are such high demand and Quark would have to be involved because he runs them and Quark would sell them out in an instant, you know, if some, if Odo paid him enough or whatever, or if Odo threatened him yeah. enough. <laughs> so <laughs> They had Bashir for like three days. Yeah. So Quark, there's no way he would allow someone to rent it out for three days unless you're Vic Fontaine. <laughs> True that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for clearing that up. I think you're so right. And I do wonder sort of the breadth of their interrogations and if this is because Bashir is such a candidate for being a spy because he's right at Deep Space Nine. He's pretty much in the middle of the war. I mean, he's literally under the command of Benjamin freaking Sisko, you know? I mean, that's a huge position to be in. And I think what they did, even though it was horrible, it was pretty brilliant because when you can monitor someone like that so closely and they're feeling like they're going through the motions or just, you know, being locked in his quarters and then they do this whole simulation where they pretend that he is then beamed to Wayun's ship and that Wayun is like, oh, you actually are a part of the Dominion, you're my spy and we go through this every time where you're in denial and then you remember and then you accept it. And Bashir, to see his reaction of like pure terror and astonishment that this could happen, it's like a really good method, even though it's horrible and very unethical. It gets the job done and it makes them realize, okay, we're for certain now that Bashir is not a spy. Yeah, that was my conclusion also when everything is revealed at the end. But throughout, I was feeling Bashir's emotions as he was going through it too. Because, yeah, when he's on Wayun's ship, I'm like, what? The literal F is going on because I know that Bashir is not a spy. Yeah. But the way that Cisco begins to turn, I mean, obviously it's holographic Cisco. Yeah. But the way that he begins to turn because he's sitting in on all the questioning with Bashir and he's supposed to be like Bashir's lawyer or mm-hmm. liaison yeah. to make sure that what Sloan is doing is humane. And so once Cisco starts to turn and starts to become convinced, I start thinking, oh man, Cisco is really smart and really doesn't trust Sloan. So why is he turning? So that starts to make me question. And then as soon as he's on, like you said, Wayun's ship and the scones and Bashir thinks, yeah, the scones. Sorry, are- I think you should explain <laughs> the scones because I almost forgot. And I saw the episode recently. <laughs> I gave Ashton this look like the, the effing scones. What? <laughs> So Bashir is really hungry, which this is also a more inhumane tactics that Sloane uses. First of all, when he beams Bashir to the ship, he's only been asleep for one hour. And so Bashir's going through sleep deprivation this whole time. Also, the replicator in the simulation is offline because it's not real. Yeah. And so Bashir can't have breakfast and he wants his scones with his jam, but yeah. he can't and have his it. Tea, yeah. He, <laughs> Yeah, and he asked Sloane for breakfast, and then Sloane is, like, all accommodating, like, yes, of course, I'll have it delivered to you, no problem. And then what's delivered to him is Worf's ga, and obviously Sloane purposefully gave him the wrong food to make him uncomfortable and put him on, make him hungry, you know, so he's under even more pressure. And so this whole episode, Bashir just wants his scones. (laughs) And so when you see that he does get the scones aboard Weyoun's ship, it's just very smart of Sloane because finally what 
Bashir has wanted all along is in the enemy's hands. And so it's almost a sign of if Bashir does eat them, that's, uh-oh. <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe he is a spy, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. If he's accepting food from the enemy and all of this stuff, I think you're so right. I hadn't put that together, Ashlyn. Also, Sloane says to Bashir, once Bashir finally figures out that it's a simulation, that couple things. He says that we find that those who are sleep deprived let their guard down earlier or something along that line. And then he also says that I would have preferred to keep you longer, but we didn't realize that O'Brien's shoulder had been dislocated when he was rowing on the holodeck. And so I think that that is horrible too, is he's like, oh yeah, we definitely could have kept you longer. And this could have gone on for weeks, maybe or at least as long as the conference was. I mean, they kept him for a couple days, but the conference was going to be a week. And so they had a long enough window to ensure that Bashir wasn't a spy. And they're literally doing it, quote unquote, whatever means necessary. And this is what I find so terrifying about Section 31 is the fact that this is sort of their motto. They're a search and destroy black ops organization. I think it's Odo at the end of the episode when they're sort of debriefing and Bashir's telling them about everything that happened to him. Odo says, well, every big organization has it. The Romulans have the Tal Shiar, the Cardassians have the Obsidian Order, the Orions have the Syndicate. You know, there's all of these certain black ops organizations that fly under the radar and can do the things that the beautiful picturesque federation would never imagine doing. Of course, an admiral would never just kidnap a chief medical officer from Deep Space Nine and interrogate him for a couple of days. This is something that Starfleet even said that they don't acknowledge it, but they also don't deny it. And so it's their way of remaining impartial and staying in the clear is that if they don't talk about Section 31, then it doesn't exist. You know, it's that kind of thing. And that's what makes it terrifying is because they are run by their own rules. And apparently Section 31 has been around for at least 200 years. It was around from pretty much the start of the Federation, I think they said. Yep. They have been operating pretty much on their own, not accountable for at least 200 years. And so they deal with threats and apparently the ends justify the means. You know, this is the kind of thing that if they had found out that Bashir was a spy or if that was the case, they would have killed him or maybe go to a prison. I think they probably would have killed him though. Yeah, definitely. I thought that last scene was interesting too because Odo and Kira and everyone who's not Federation are not at all surprised that there is a black ops organization, but everyone in the Federation is shocked that there could be something so immoral. And Bashir, the most, of course, because he's just been through this very low-key, torturous event. Yes. And he is pretty disgusted by it. And so I thought it was a really bold move of Sloan to offer Bashir a position to join section 31 because Bashir feels like it's so wrong and everything and then Sloan says well what if I give you some power you like playing spy on the holodeck why not come play spy in real life I thought that was really interesting of Sloan to ask of Bashir because okay you have all this criticism how about you join and make a difference then and then once you're in it you see just how much they really can do Yeah, and this is something, we didn't talk about this episode in The Next Generation, but there is an episode where Q offers Riker a position in the continuum, and I think that that is always a fascinating plot turn for me in these Star Trek episodes, where our characters are offered power, and 
grandeur and all of this stuff and how you know i mean usually if they're stand-up starfleet officers and adhere to their moral values and all of that they say no but i think bashir is a bit of a question mark for sloan because he lied about being genetically enhanced for uh, to get into starfleet medical and all of these things understandably justifiably Bashir didn't have a lot of say. He had literally no consent about being genetically enhanced. So, of course, he had to lie in order to get anywhere in life and not be imprisoned, (laughs) you know, all of this stuff or incarcerated. But I think that it still provided an opening for Sloane to be like, well, this guy has done maybe some questionable moral stuff in the past. Maybe he wants to continue that. It's interesting to see where villains try to tempt our characters into sort of coming to the dark side or coming to... Uh, join their position and we're going to talk about this soon with O'Brien as well and so I think that it's an important lesson to remember is that Starfleet of course has these upstanding officers who adhere to these values but how many Starfleet officers out of a hundred would take Sloan's offer? Like half? (laughs) Yeah I think probably half. We of course in our Star Trek series get to see the best of the best of these characters but As we go along, we see characters who are maybe side episode characters or people who are in the background who would definitely take that offer for a chance of power. And I mean, someone like Ash Tyler, who feels like they don't have a place. Sorry, Discovery spoilers, but (laughs) this is essential for some characters to feel like they can belong somewhere. And I think that that's what they were trying to get out of Bashir. One other thing I was going to say that's really sketchy is that they also chipped Bashir for neural responses when he arrived on the holodeck. And of course, did this without his consent. All of this was without his consent. But that's another level of scary, you know, is that they're literally checking sort of a lie detector, seeing, okay, we got him stressed enough. (laughs) Let's see if we can break him, essentially, which is what the Dominion were doing when he was captured is they put him in solitary and they were trying to break down these prisoners and so it's funny that they're accusing him of being a spy from being broken down by the Dominion when they're kind of breaking him down to see if he's a spy. It's just insane. The thing that makes me sleep at night, though, knowing Section 31 exists, is that if this is how they're treating Federation members who are suspect of being traitors, imagine how they're treating actual traitors. Um, That makes you sleep at night? Actual villains. (laughs) That keeps me up at night. (laughs) (laughs) If they're horrible to our heroes, imagine how horrible they are to our villains. Well, okay, okay. I just mean that, like, they are really keeping the Federation safe. And, yes, they have a lot of power. And, sure, they could go crazy and carry out, like, all these assassinations and go wild. But they're not, for now, that we know of. Uh (laughs) And they're keeping the Federation safe. So that's the only thing that makes me feel a little better about it, is they can use any means necessary, even though it's inhumane. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I really get that. I think that it kind of provides this idea of like, well, we are the ones who actually keep you safe kind of thing. And that's sort of what Sloan was indicating, is that Starfleet looks to us to make the hard choices. And it's interesting to me that Section 31 does not do anything about the Maquis. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder about this a little. Mostly it's uh, my transition. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the Maquis are probably not powerful enough to be on Section 31's radar, to be honest. Okay, so I'm very excited about this one. So, yes, there is no Maquis episodes in The Next Generation, but we actually see the start of this conflict in The Next Generation 
in the episode Journey's End, we actually see Picard is the one brought in to negotiate this treaty between the colonists and the Cardassians. And basically, this treaty's already been signed and agreed to, and Picard is sent in as someone to enforce it and to tell the colonists that, sorry, this is what's going to happen, and you're just going to have to deal with it, sort of to make them okay with it. And there's not much negotiation. I don't think we see the Cardassians in a negotiation room at all. We just see them appear on the planet at the end because they're shooting at the colonists and they're trying to remove them from their territory. So this is kind of a complicated issue. (laughs) Ashlyn, you were blowing my mind. I completely didn't put that together, but it makes sense because this planet is inside of Cardassian space, sadly, because Cardassian wanted to expand and that planet was just sort of in the way kind of thing. Wow. I'm like, I'm speechless. I can't believe I didn't put those two together. Yes. And that's why, again, I have to compliment the writers for pulling this single thread from Next Gen and expanding it into an entire plot that will lead eventually to Voyager. Yeah. As much as Rick Berman drives me nuts. This part is cool. Yeah. (laughs) The monkey birth is cool. Yeah. But yeah, so essentially, and what's so heartbreaking about that episode, which we did talk about in our family series because Wesley sees his dad in Journey's End and has like a vision. Mm -hmm. But what's especially sad is that most of the colonists that are in the Cardassian territory are native people who have had their land taken away on earth and so they left earth to go create their new land then they are having it taken away again by the Cardassians. And so these are indigenous people that are just having their land ripped away from them over and over and over again. Not all of them are indigenous, but it doesn't matter. You know, like if your land's being taken away, it's awful. Mm -hmm. And so it's a mix. It's also other colonists who came from Earth and other human outposts to make a new land for themselves and make a new life. And so a lot of them are farmers and everyday people and their planets happen to be in Cardassian space but it only recently became Cardassian space which is so messed up and the Federation just doesn't want to start a war with the Cardassians over this territory so they're basically assuming that the Cardassians are going to treat those colonists humanely and just let them continue living there but that's not how it goes the Cardassians want their territory and they want to live there but what makes it so complicated in this episode now in D Space Nine is that on the highest levels the Cardassian officials do intend on letting the colonists live peacefully and if there's a couple skirmishes it's fine but they're not policing it but what they don't realize is on the lowest levels there is actually a full-out war going on between the colonists and the Cardassians who are trying to move in there and take their homes so people like Gold Dukat do not know that this is happening (laughs) and he's supposed to be super high up and Mm -hmm. in this episode him and Cisco they go to investigate what the heck is happening in this area And both of them see renegade Federation ships and renegade Cardassian ships with photons shooting at each other. It's a big mess. It's a huge mess. It's horrible. And an element that is so interesting about this episode is that Sisko's friend from the Academy is the liaison to this planet. So he has been assigned this planet to... Not just this planet, to all the colonies that are in Cardassian. He's wow, the yeah. he's a colonist liaison. Thank you, Ashlyn. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, no, I'm just very excited. Ne- never <laughs> apologize. I love this. Um, 
<laughs> Ashlyn's like our resident Maki expert, I think, because she loves Chakotay so much. So, oh, Rihanna, you said it. Oh, you said it. I hit it right on the nose there. <laughs> but so we've got the Starfleet officer who is a liaison and who has become highly sympathetic to their cause understandably i think anyone in this situation who has a heart and a brain will see that this is unjust and horrible what's going on with these skirmishes and he ends up being not only a sympathizer but he's a part of the maquis and a part of this sort of rebel faction that has cropped up in the federation which again everyone on the higher up is like that pikachu meme where he's so shocked you know like they're just surprised (laughs) that anything like that could happen within the federation especially within colonies but i think that the federation colonists are constantly forgotten about and left to their own devices to struggle we talked about this with nancy and the salt liquor you know this is supposed to be a colony of these two people and they were never checked up on or seldom were and he had to live with a salt liquor you know they were but nancy (laughs) kept killing them that's why that's true again but no one checked up on them or when they did not return to the archons until lower decks you know so there's these circumstances and those aren't federation colonies but still there are circumstances where colonists are always left on the wayside which like wow surprise surprise this is what happens a lot in America with our native population. Anyway, I just find these parallels to be really interesting. And also, I really understand where this Starfleet commander or captain, I can't remember his rank, Ben's friend, I really understand where he's coming from because he's had to see up close the struggle that the colonists go through and how they are creating this, quote, anti-Cardassian force. That's what the Maquis started out as, is trying to drive away the Cardassian rule on their planet. A cow is his name, is Ben's friend. Thank you. Yeah, it's really crazy. And I am just surprised. Like, it just surprises me that the Federation would do this. I know, like you said, Rihanna, like, this is a pattern that we see over and over again, is that the government forgets its people. But something like the Federation is something I so believe in. And I am just surprised that they're not willing to go to war. I Well, I don't know, but then it's tricky. Like, would you go to war over, like, Alaska, you know? <laughs> Burn. <laughs> Ashlyn just burned all of our Alaskan listeners. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry i was just trying to think of like a territory that we have in america but is like closer to another country like alaska's in canada essentially but we claimed it isn't technically puerto rico part of american territory but we never care about it oh yeah and guam yeah Yeah, and all the all the islands so yeah you're absolutely correct ashlyn i think that those places are often forgotten and left on the wayside because it's either far away or not in our radar well, and, well, I don't, we can't get too much into no. American politics, but, like, none of them even have senators. Yeah. You know, there's no representation. There's, this is, even though they, even though they vote in our elections. Yeah, this is yeah. exactly the problem that we see with the Maquis, and that, like, this one, Akar, is the only person who is standing up for them within the Federation, like, government itself. Yeah, and so it's, oh, it's so tricky, but I'm just... Uh, yeah, oh, I'm just conflicted. Like, I, the Federation, I just can't believe that they would abandon their people. And so this is why I would run away with the Maquis. Yeah. Because I, too, would feel the call of, we have to fight for our land. These people journeyed 
millions of miles to get here and they are putting their heart and souls into their land that they're defending and so i understand cal for burning his starfleet uniform i'm sorry i called him a car i don't know who that is a car (laughs) (laughs) his name's cal sorry everyone (laughs) a car who's that i don't know maybe if they get to char from the animated series (laughs) he's a flying bird so i don't know oh my god anyway yeah, it's just uh, it's so rough. But so the Maki want to take a stand, and so they kidnap Gold Ducat. <laughs> Woo! And they do it successfully, which is wild. It's because they have Maki operatives on Deep Space Nine, and this is something that I find really fascinating. That it's grown enough that the Maki has expanded to have enough members to infiltrate Deep Space Nine in this way and to create. A situation where they can kidnap Gold Ducat. It's really insane. There's this one Vulcan member of the Maquis who tries to mind meld with Gold Ducat and turns out that he can shield his thoughts, which is like makes sense. He's Cardassian, he's very used to interrogation techniques. He's probably practiced this since he was a kid. But I don't know, I just find that really fascinating to me. And also the fact that there's a Vulcan in the Maquis, I think, is really cool. <laughs> It's interesting because I think of Tuvok, who was undercover as the Maquis, but I think of someone like a Vulcan who still understands that this is wrong and thinks that this is the most logical front to fight for is the Maquis. And it kind of gives me more respect for them almost when I see a Vulcan member. I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe not, this is not the right solution to these problems, but I understand why, Ashlyn, like you said, I understand why you'd run away with them for sure. Yeah, well, and she's also a weapons runner. So she's talking to Quark on DS9 because she wants to procure weapons for the Maquis. Much like there was a whole suspicion because in the beginning of the episode, the Bok Nor explodes, which is a Federation shuttle that the cargo hold was empty and it it was exploded by this guy who ended up being a Maquis member because it was his way of protesting that the Federation was not getting involved in the situation but uh, it was full of people you're right it was yeah had like 50 people on it yeah like a lot of people died and so there was suspicions that it was the Cardassians who blew it up before they realized it was a member of the Maquis. There's all these signs building up that the Cardassians want war. There's a previous episode, which we haven't talked about yet, where the Cardassians were actually giving weapons to the Bajorans. In the episode The Circle, which we're going to talk about a little later, but just in this point, the Federation found out that the Cardassians were smuggling weapons through a third party to give weapons to the Circle on Bajor. And so Cisco believes that this is happening again, that the Cardassians are smuggling weapons to someone to give to the Maquis to start a war with the Federation. So that's what's so surprising is that neither of the higher ups on the Federation or Cardassian side want this to happen. It's all fueled by the people. Absolutely. So, yeah. Oof. The two-parter ends where Cisco rescues Ducat, and he was going to be killed. They were going to kill him, the Maquis, to make the Cardassians see that they mean business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's good that he survived, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the enemy of my enemy is yeah. my friend kind of thing. Gold Ducat was certainly shocked that Cisco stuck his neck out for him, and I think Cisco understands that this could start a war, and of course the war is going to start anyway, but for different reasons. 
and he wanted to prevent it and he knew that if gold ducat was murdered by a starfleet rebel faction they definitely go to war with starfleet the cardassians yeah. would it's true cisco prevented this war yeah <laughs> yeah well okay so let's jump to our last group our last evil association that we're going to talk about and that is Sorry, I just got caught up. I don't want to say the Maquis are evil, but you know, I mean, I hope all you listeners understand while we're covering them in the series. Yeah. Because they did murder, like, 50 people mm-hmm. on the Baknor, and, you yeah. know, they're they're murdering innocent people, so mm-hmm. that's why we're calling them evil. Anyway, so mm-hmm. back to our third evil group of Deep Space Nine, the Orion Syndicate, which is actually a true evil group. <laughs> Truly evil. Well, not everyone's evil in it, and this is something that we learn in the episode, but... Ashlyn, you're right. Shades of gray. Shades of gray. As a whole, whole, it is looked at as a very sus group, essentially. The Orion Syndicate is famous for its black market trade deals. It's famous for its assassination attempts. There's a lot of shady business that goes on with the Syndicate where, yeah, I mean, in this episode, we're seeing that one of the members is asked to assassinate someone. And so... Similar to Section 31, it runs sort of underground as a way to further people's causes or their bank account. You know, it's it's often the member that we meet, whose name is Bilby, he is doing this all for his family and for the money that he's making he sends to his wife and kids. And this is his motivation throughout the whole thing is just my family. And O'Brien is sent to go undercover by Starfleet. So this is how we set up the episode is we learn that he is choosing to track Bilby. There's a traitor in the Federation who belongs to the Orion Syndicate and O'Brien's just trying to find out his name. Yes. And so he uses Bilby to get to the traitor and to understand who sold out a bunch of these other Starfleet operatives that got them killed because they're... Not a bunch, but all of them. Oh my god. He sold out every Federation operative. And so that's why O'Brien... I'm sorry to interrupt, but no. I would just... This is shocking. This is yeah. breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah, he killed all of the operatives because O'Brien is not an underground operative, but... They had to call in someone who wasn't known by the Federation because this guy killed everybody else. And so O'Brien is, like, not officially a part of the faction, but he was brought on because of his prior experience with being an operative, I guess. Well, and he was brought on also because of his engineering and technological skills because they needed someone who could pose as this down on his luck handyman who could do quick fixes for Bilby and become part of his crew and they needed someone who was a very good engineer and who could literally fix random things overnight or on short deadlines that would satisfy Bilby and satisfy the syndicate and also because O'Brien is notoriously Star Trek's whipping boy he is constantly in the line of fire he's been in so many wars i mean he talks about this a lot how like he's used to living on rations from times when he was in big firefights i mean even before deep space nine he was in a couple wars so or at least one you know and of course like we talked about he was tortured for 20 simulated years and like he's just constantly getting the short end of the stick poor guy so in this episode particularly we see o'brien struggling a lot with his own morals and especially once he gets to know bilby better because this is the shades of gray we were talking about 
with the fact that Bilby is just trying to make a living and obviously he shouldn't have joined the syndicate but it's one of those things where like you join you're kind of joined for life and it's sort of I guess mafia is what they were going for is what I I mean I've never actually don't know real mafia stories or mob stories <laughs> but like from all the movies I've seen from the godfather you know if you betray someone you're gonna get killed Bilby witnessed for O'Brien saying that he's trustworthy he's not an operative and this put O'Brien in the position of being like oh my god this guy will get killed if they find out that I'm an operative which they will eventually because they'll figure out that there's someone on the inside if Starfleet is getting this information and arresting the informant and all of this stuff and so it becomes first it's supposed to be this couple day mission and of course O'Brien is first like I just want to get back to my family like this is horrible and then he starts to become friends with Bilby because he has to get close to him to figure out. And then he finds out that there's a Vorda working with the Orion Syndicate, which just blows everything into this new realm of danger because that means that the Dominion is working with the Syndicate and that means that they're probably procuring weapons and maybe doing assassinations and all of these other horrible acts underground that Starfleet doesn't even know about. Yeah, so Vorta being involved in the Orion Syndicate is really bad and so poor O'Brien, he has to stay later. But at this point, he's pretty invested into this because he's starting to really care about Bilby to the point where when the episode comes to a head, we find out that Ramus and the Vorta assign Bilby to take out the Klingon ambassador to the planet and frame it on Gowron, which would be really chaotic and disastrous. And so O'Brien informs the Admiral that he's working for like right away. And so then the Admiral's like, all right, O'Brien, time to come home. And O'Brien punches him in the face. Yes. <laughs> and this is the thing is that on his last checkup with the Admiral, he asks him what's going to happen to Bilby when they find out that I'm an operative. And he says, that's not of your concern. We're not worried about Bilby here. Bilby's not even the target. And that is what starts to make O'Brien realize, oh my God, like this is messed up. I need to do something about this. And so yeah, he punches this guy and he goes to tell Bilby about his true identity. Yeah, and Bilby doesn't want to believe him, but he does reveal that he's a Starfleet officer. And so O'Brien says, okay, well, now that I've told you, get out of town go home or run away or something and he says i can't because if i defect then they're going to kill my family and if i don't go through with the mission they're going to kill me and if they find out that i witnessed for you and you're an operative they're going to kill me anyway so the only choice is for him to do the only thing he can to save his family and that's to just walk into this situation try to kill the ambassador and of course he will be caught by Starfleet because Starfleet knows everything that's going on. Yeah, this is really messed up. He says to O'Brien, there's no hiding from the syndicate. And this is something that we hear very similarly about the Jem'Hadar. And actually in this episode, the Vorta who is overseeing all of this calls the members of the Ryan Syndicate, quote, so accommodating, he reminds me of a Jem'Hadar. So it's sort of this similar type of ride or die literally <laughs> like you have to be a part of it forever you're dead kind of thing or once you're sort of useless to this organization then they kill you yeah and what's disturbing about this is how easy it was for o'brien to join the syndicate because all he did was repair something for bilby and suddenly after a day or two bilby's witnessing for him and if o'brien had not been undercover if he had just been a regular joe 
who was just down on his luck, he would have been joining this group for life without knowing it. There's no contract you can read ahead of time that says, we're going to kill everyone you love if you betray us, you know, but that's just how it goes. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think there were a lot of opportunities for O'Brien, if he even, even if he wanted to, to get out. And so it just makes me think of how terrifying the syndicate is because they can just get everyday people wrap them into the syndicate and then they can't leave we didn't watch this episode for this podcast but for our family series we watched an episode where Esri actually in season seven goes back to her family and it turns out that all of them are involved in the orion syndicate Mm -hmm. and it ends up spoiler that her brother ends up killing himself because he can't escape the syndicate even though he just wants to be an artist this group is terrifying and powerful and they will endure for a long time yeah we talked about how the syndicate and the gem hadar are so similar I want to unpack that a little because now that we're moving on to the Jem'Hadar as a villain group or as a force to be reckoned with, this is something that we discover from the very first episode that they were introduced. It's called the Jem'Hadar. It's fairly early on. So this Vorda, who is really good at subterfuge, she is essentially telling Cisco that the Jem'Hadar, there's no escape from them. No matter where she runs, they will find her. And this is something that everyone talks about when they speak of the Jem'Hadar, that they are ruthless, that they are willing to go to the ends of the earth to find their adversary. Vorda's will talk about this. Any species who encounters the Jem'Hadar is aware of how dangerous they are. I want to talk about this a little because the Jem'Hadar are the strong arms of the Dominion. They are the weapons, essentially, of the Dominion force. Literally, the Dominion is described as if they decide they want something, they take it or they negotiate, and then if negotiation doesn't work, they kill the people and then take it for their own. The Dominion has been terrorizing the Gamma Quadrant for decades, it seems like. Most people who have any sort of civilization has heard of the Jem'Hadar and has heard of the Dominion in the Gamma Quadrant because that's how far their rule spreads. Yes, and we have not heard about them yet in the Federation in this episode the Jem'Hadar. It starts off very innocently because Jake and Nog have to do a science project for school and (laughs) Jake wants to just like watch a plant grow and... And Cisco's like, seriously, you should do some real science. What would be really fun? And Jake says, let's survey a planet in the Gamma Quadrant. And Cisco's like, oh, hell yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And so they go, Quark tags along with Nog because he has his own agenda. He's trying to get out of Cisco. Anyway, so when they're camping on this planet and doing the survey, they're just hanging out. And then this Vorta like runs up to them and thinks like, oh, you're the enemy, what's going on? And then that Vorta, eventually the Jem'Hadar catch up to her and then the Jem'Hadar capture all of them, assuming that the Vorta and the humans and Quark are working together. (laughs) And so they're in this prison and Quark is like yelling the whole time. It's really funny. The Jem'Hadar get really frustrated with Quark, but eventually they are able to escape because Quark 
he broke the lock around the Vorta's neck, and the Vorta Iris is her name. Uh, thanks, Brianna, for doing some research. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're able to escape, and then meanwhile, Jake and Nog are freaking the F out and on the shuttle trying to go home to get everybody to help find Cisco and Quark. But turns out DS9 was looking for them anyway. Yeah. And so they meet up and they rescue Quark, Cisco, and Iris. And they take everybody back to DS9. But guess what? It's a trap. Because this was all planned all along by the Jem'Hadar and the founders. Because they wanted to see where the wormhole was and where DS9 was. And they want to know what's going on with the Alpha Quadrant. And so this Vorta, Iris, is a traitor as well. And (laughs) is working for the Dominion. And so... I honestly thought the saddest part of this episode was when the Jem'Hadar beams onto the station and he goes up to Kira because she's just standing right there and he's like, we killed all the Bajoran outposts in the Gamma Quadrant. We killed all of the colonists who settled there. And that's such a blow because a lot of those Bajorans went out to escape the Cardassians when they found out that the wormhole was stable. So they were seeking a new life and they were just murdered by the founders. And so that really that really hit me yeah. when I found out that they were all murdered. Like, oh, that's awful. It's horrible. Well, then- also, another horrible thing about this episode, <laughs> if we're adding a list here, is yeah. that they were exchanging a firefight with another Starfleet ship because they needed backup. And then they had gotten Cisco and rescued everyone. They said, okay, let's retreat. And they were retreating and the Jem'Hadar committed a suicide run so that they could make sure there were no survivors. And this is the thing that we have to remember about the Jem'Hadar is that they, like I said earlier, will search and destroy. Essentially, they will go to the ends of the earth to make sure their foes are eliminated. And it doesn't matter if they're retreating. It doesn't matter if they're trying to negotiate. Really, all the Jem'Hadar care about is victory because to them, victory is life. That's their motto. Eris, at the end of the episode, she says, you have no idea what you've started here. And this is terrifying because this is truly the first beginnings we see of the war and of the fact that they're really looking to see what defense capabilities the Alpha Quadrant has, what Deep Space Nine has. It's really scary that they're able to infiltrate so easily and that the Vorta is cunning enough to know I can just act like a damsel in distress and they'll come and save me or like try to help me. Anyway, this is our first introduction to the Jem'Hadar and we don't learn a ton about their Ketracel White addiction until episodes following this, but I do want to talk about this because we're going to learn about, of course, in the next episode, Hippocratic Oath, where Jem'Hadar are essentially built to be reliant on the Ketracel White, which makes them reliant on the Vorta who supply it and this was all in creation of these this warrior race essentially as slaves because there's always distinctions to the rule like oh this Jem'Hadar I want to run away with (laughs) in this episode (laughs) (laughs) the Ketra so white is literally the reason that they're able to stay alive and because it's a drug but it's more than a drug to them it's their life force and they are beholden to 
the Vorta for this reason. It's pretty dicey what's going on here. And we learn gradually as we learn more about the Dominion that the Jem'Hadar are sort of the bottom of this food chain when it comes to the Dominion, that they are the foot soldiers, the slave race who does whatever the Vorta say. And then we learn later that the Vorta do whatever the founders say and are beholden to them. And so it's this chain of ruling through fear and control. And that's what the Dominion specializes in. Like I said, earlier it specializes in the fact that they can conquer worlds easily when the vorta is talking about the jemhadar she says that the dominion entered Kirill prime and they seize control before anyone could do anything about it that no one escapes from the jemhadar or from the dominion and so we see how what a terrifying force they are that they can take over whole planets before people even realize what's going on yeah they're incredibly powerful and this actually reminds me of Star Wars a little bit because the Jem'Hadar are basically like the clones Mm -hmm. in the Clone Wars or we see this in sci-fi and fantasy all the time that there's some sort of underlings but what I appreciate about DS9 is that they take the time like in Hippocratic Oath to really get to know these Jem'Hadar and we get to see a different side of the Jem'Hadar that make us really sympathize with them and this is pretty early on so like the Jem'Hadar are introduced in the season finale of season two which is crazy to think about that this war is going to last five seasons essentially of the founders and Jem'Hadar and the changelings and everything. Rihanna let's talk about Hippocratic Oath will you give a plot synopsis? (laughs) This is Rihanna's like lifeblood her heart beats (laughs) for this episode. Yeah I watch it often because I love the ethics and morals in it but essentially Bashir and O'Brien crash land on this planet. A very normal beginning to an episode where there are stranded Jem'Hadar soldiers there and it turns out that there's one Jem'Hadar who crash landed on this very same planet and ran out of white and thought he was going to die and was ready to just surrender to death and everything but he didn't die and it turns out that he was able to wean himself off of the Ketracel white and become his own person essentially and free of the white and so he brings his soldiers there to try to attempt the same experiment really he has the same conditions on the planet the same ship everything he's trying to replicate this experience so that he can get his fellow members free of white because once he's free he realizes the control that the vorta have over them and that truly they are slaves to this cause and to the dominion cause and so he's becoming woke yeah he really <laughs> is i love a good woke jemhadar <laughs> the crew complement of the jemhadar is probably like seven or eight jemhadar and they are running very low on ketracel white when bashir and o'brien get here o'brien is very against the jemhadar of course yeah so this is season four we are into the war at this point and we have seen a lot of devastation come from the Jem'Hadar. So O'Brien understandably has a lot of hatred towards the Jem'Hadar. And I truly understand it, like I really do. But Bashir, who is a doctor and who who values life above pretty much anything else, and this is why the episode is called Hippocratic Oath, because of course that's the doctor's oath to do no harm. The Jem'Hadar tells Bashir that he is, quote, trained to feel sympathy and that Bashir will help him because this is how he is trained, essentially. 
And this is what I find an interesting distinction about the Jem'Hadar is that they do not have the capacity for sympathy outright. Sure, maybe they can learn it, and like this Jem'Hadar seemed to have learned it after he was off of his addiction to the white. But the fact that he says train to feel sympathy shows that that is not inside a Jem'Hadar to feel sympathy, and it's not within the nature <laughs> of a Dementor to be forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah, nice. A little Harry Potter reference there. But so he's pretty sure that Bashir will help him, and he does because Bashir does have this sympathetic nature being a doctor. We learn a lot about the Jem'Hadar and their structure in this episode. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the penalty for disobedience and how that works, Ashlyn? Yeah, so basically there's a whole command structure like we've talked about with the changelings are in control of the Vorta, in control of the Jem'Hadar. And then within the Jem'Hadar, there's a structure where there's a first a second and a third are the three most important positions and then they control everybody else. And the first is the captain essentially. And so they answer for however all of the other Jem'Hadar act and all the other Jem'Hadar have to respect and do whatever they say, otherwise they're killed. It's all black and white with the Jem'Hadar. If you mess up, you're dead. And honestly, it's good for the rest of the Jem'Hadar because that means there's more white for everybody else. There's more drugs to go around yeah. if someone dies and misbehaves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is, of course, very intense and something that the main Jem'Hadar, his name is Goran Agnar, he is trying to rid them of this inbred distinction of let's not die for the Vorta and for these causes. Let's die for something that we believe in. Yeah, so this command structure is very important to them. What I find a little bit concerning about O'Brien, and again, I understand and I really empathize with what he's saying because the, for the most part, the Jem'Hadar are super evil and of course they're just willing to kill anyone that comes in their path that's not a part of the Dominion. But O'Brien says, good, like let's let them run out of white and let's let them die here because he says we don't want to find them a cure for the white because then they can start acting on their own he says it's good because quote the dominion keep them on a short leash and i find this to be really dangerous rhetoric because it makes the assumption that it's good that these slaves are being kept leashed by the Vorta and it's a good thing or else they could develop their own independence but i don't know ashlyn how did you feel about o'brien's attitude versus bashir's in this episode well, it's right on brand for O'Brien. This is exactly Absolutely. how I would expect him to react. There's so many episodes where he's like low-key racist to Cardassians and Klingons in Next Generation. Yeah. So uh, th this is how he is. Uh, he's very set in his ways. Ooh, I understand his perspective because the Jem'Hadar were literally bred to be soldiers. But if there's one Jem'Hadar who's willing to escape the Vorta and have his own free life, then <laughs> when do you assume that there would be more and that at their true nature is that they don't want to be addicted to drugs? Like, yeah, I don't know. So I feel like O'Brien can't take that step away like the way that Bashir can because he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I also think that this is the beginning and O'Brien just cannot see this, but this is the beginning of us as viewers understanding that the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta are not best friends mm -hmm. and they are not doing this out of undying loyalty because they love the Vorta like the way that the Vorta love the changelings which they really do we're going to talk about that uh, pretty soon but the Jem'Hadar 
I think, see themselves secretly as much more powerful than the Vorta and a much more able force than the Vorta, but they are held down because they're slaves. I think this is just a super important episode because we begin to learn that they are separate and that they are a cog working in the wheel of the Dominion and they make it happen. So without their cooperation, it's not going to work. And I also just wanted to briefly bring up that the idea of using drugs to make soldiers fight is something that is in Star Trek history. Um, Q actually in the pilot episode of Next Generation talks about how in the eugenics wars of the 90s, we used drugs to make soldiers fight it mm-hmm. seems like because Q appears like in an outfit that has like drugs that's like sending heroin or something like straight to the brain of a soldier. Yeah. And so this is a Star Trek thing. To my knowledge, is this a thing in human history or is this just like a door I don't want to open? I mean, I think one could argue that Star Trek is trying to talk about bigger issues of addiction and of reliancy on I don't know. I mean, the writers of Star Trek always want to hearken the themes of the show to real life and to what they're experiencing. And so perhaps it's a talk about the war on drugs. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell. I don't see a direct distinction until our life or like our history. But I also only have like a skewed American view. Yeah, you know, I please would hope that someone would write in or tweet us because I just want to make sure that that does not happen or has not happened. I just am scared because I know humans are the humans are the worst. I think also it's another way of saying that even if you pay soldiers, it's not going to buy the truest form of loyalty, which is what the Federation has. Yeah. Which I can't wait to talk about rocks and shoals. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Coming up next. Before we do that, I also want to say the end of Hippocratic Oath. Essentially, we learned that the rest of the Jem'Hadar, besides Gora and Agnar, do not want to be free of the white. And they are not interested in being cured. And this is actually a genetic thing from Goran himself, who was able to rid himself of the white. Because Bashir tried everything to see if they could be rid of it. And it turns out that it's just not possible. And so Goran saves Bashir and O'Brien and gets them off the planet before the Jem'Hadar start really losing their minds. Because once the white starts really running out, they get excessively violent and attack each other and everything and there's really no way of stopping that so we know that he died in this fight and that all those Jem'Hadar died on that planet and it's just sort of a horrible thing to think about but also it's cool to see that there was a Jem'Hadar who could free themselves of white and who had that moment of realizing hey there's more to life than being a slave and I do like that he got those moments it's sad that it was sort of a DNA thing and not something that could perhaps be sent to a lot of other Jem'Hadar because then the Federation could convince them, hey, maybe stop joining the Dominion. (laughs) Maybe think for yourselves, you know? Well, and I think what maybe, honestly, makes the war last a little bit longer is the fact that O'Brien destroyed Bashir's work that he was doing on the group of Jem'Hadar because what Bashir realized, as you said, is that it's just how does he say his name? Gornabjar? Goran <laughs> uh, Agnar. Agnar. Goran, yeah, Goran Agnar just was born with the ability to survive without white. He has the chemical in his body already without the white. And so he was just like a whoopsie daisy <laughs> that when the changelings made him. And so 
I think that it's possible that Bashir could have taken his data back to the Federation and to all the other scientists and said, hey, how could we stop the Jem'Hadar from being addicted? Like knowing that this guy had this special DNA, could we replicate it and like capture some Jem'Hadar and free them or something, you know? Yeah. I wonder if that could have led to a sooner end to the war or at least some negotiation to say, hey, Jem'Hadar, we'll let you join the Federation and you can be free of the Vorta like, yeah. and you can have amnesty, you know? That is another slippery slope though because then it's just another way to control the Jem'Hadar. Say, we'll give you freedom if you join us, you know? But I, I agree. Well, I, I think but that I... honestly the Federation wouldn't go for it because of people like O'Brien who think it's too risky. But I do like the concept for sure yeah i mean not necessarily like join the federation but give them amnesty to say you don't have to you can do whatever you want but you don't have to go back to the founders yeah exactly (laughs) oh well (laughs) it's not how it works sadly (laughs) so yeah let's talk a little bit about rocks and trolls because this one oof, another very ethical puzzle we're learning about in this episode Okay, so in this one, there's another crash landing on this planet, <laughs> and we have Dax, Cisco, Bashir, Garrick, Nog, and some other rando Starfleet officers. Oh, and two other randos, like a cadet and a lieutenant or something. Mm-hmm. And Dax is injured in the crash, and the symbiont had a little bit of damage, and so Dax is basically like just chilling this whole episode yeah. in the cave. She has a lot of good jokes, mm-hmm. um, but any- anyway. <laughs> You know, I just love talking about Dax. Anyway, so (laughs) all um, the time. So what they find out is that there is a faction of Jem'Hadar. Jem, yeah, of Jem'Hadar. I keep thinking, do we pluralize Jem'Hadars? Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. But so there is a faction of Jem'Hadar that are also on the planet with a Vorta named Kievan, who I think we've seen before. Yeah, I think maybe it's or the same we've seen actor. a clone. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, but he's been around yeah. <laughs> around town, and he is also severely injured from the crash landing. And what we know is that they only have one vial of white left for ten days, Oof. which is not going to go well. And also, their first and second of the Jem'Hadar were killed in the crash, and so there's only third to command the rest of the faction, and. That is tough because he doesn't really have the training to be a first, but he is still expected to lead the rest of the faction, the rest of the Jem'Hadar, and and kind of take the place of first. And so he's acting as the liaison. Kievan, the Vorta, is communicating with him specifically, and he and Third is taking responsibility for all of the actions that his crew does essentially so like for example third informs keevan that oh there are humans that have crashed on the planet they're probably federation and so keevan says okay go take a look out but don't fire on them because we just want to see what we're dealing with and so third goes out with his crew and of course unfortunately the gem had our fire upon the our friends there yeah. on, on the in the federation and then when they go back and reports about sorry we fired on them <laughs> keevan demands to know who it was and third does not give away his name third says if you want to discipline me go for it but i discipline my men mm-hmm. and he doesn't kill third does not kill the guy who disobeyed his command which is shocking, shocking. yeah yeah, shocking. And instead, I think he 
I don't even know what he does. He just says, don't do that. Yeah, he's like, hey, <laughs> hey, no, no. <laughs> yeah, so that's really shocking. And so I think this episode, we really start to see how much the Jem'Hadar really, really hate Kievan and really hate the Vorta in general. Kievan ends up betraying the Jem'Hadar. Yeah. In that raid, they take Nog and Garrick as prisoners, so then Keevan says, all right, let's go tell Cisco third that we're going to make a trade. We'll take Cisco and Bashir so Bashir can cure Keevan because he's so sick. In this interaction, we start to see Cisco planting the seeds of rebellion in third, which is such a Cisco thing to do. Literally. Yeah, so Keevan betrays them by saying that, oh, I'm going to send the Jem'Hadar to attack your base tomorrow and you can stop them if you want. So essentially he wants the Jem'Hadar out of his way. He says that once they run out of white, they will become, quote, senseless, wild animals again is this rhetoric of i mean maybe it's true and maybe they do like i said earlier they go a little mad when they're out of the white but it's again perpetuating this toxic view that the jemhadar are just animals to be kept on a leash you know and that they're easily disposable and all of this stuff and that's how he even feels about them because he sends them to their death he says that i'm going to send the jemhadar regardless of if you're going to fight back so if you want to live essentially kill my men before they run out of white. And Cisco's of course put into a very tricky position here and all of the crew is, but they have to kill them. They have to fight for themselves if they want to stay alive and if they want to get off the planet. And they do. It's a pretty horrible ambush that um but Cisco tries to tell him, he tells him, You got sold out by your own leader, the one that you're supposed to obey and have glory to and all of that. But third and his men say, Well, we must fight or like they said they will go to their death because it's quote glory to the founders. And so this is really where the toxic indoctrination is really shown because it starts from the top. It starts from the founders, from the changelings. And of course, like we're going to talk about, the Vorta, they're really into the founders. They love them a lot. And of course, then by proxy, the Jem'Hadar have to be. They have to do what they think will bring glory to the founders, even if that means getting slaughtered. It is really wild. And I have nothing but respect for Third, honestly. He does a really good job leading his men. He ends up showing empathy for them because he knows that we're all in this together and the Vorta does not care about us at all. Mm -hmm. And as evidenced by literally Kievan doesn't care about them. (laughs) Kievan just doesn't. Yeah. And so I think it's admirable that Cisco is trying to change his mind and saying, hey, you should just kill Kievan and then you can do whatever you want. But third knows like, nope, I'm going to go down obeying my leaders, which is... That is a bummer. He dies for it. But I was interested to see that he might have been tempted by this opportunity, but nope. Yeah, absolutely. So I think let's move right along up the food chain, essentially, to talk about the Vortas and in particular the (laughs) Wyuns, plural, because there are a lot of them. (laughs) Four, five, six, and seven. So the first glimpse we get at our lovely Jeffrey Combs Wyun is the episode To the Death. And this is another semi team up here okay this is another tng origin story um and i also want to say that it was directed by lavar burton so i yeah i really like this episode so basically the iconian species is a species that existed a long time ago like so long ago it was before humans existed and they ruled the galaxy because they had these doorways 
throughout and so they like had the technology where they could just go in a doorway and then go to like anywhere they wanted sounds like scarpadian kind of all our yesterdays oh with the doorway to the ice planet yeah yeah actually with the library Mm -hmm. yeah that's very yeah similar but actually this was a next generation episode where they found a doorway on one of the iconian homeworlds and they had to end up destroying it. And I don't know if you remember, we talked about it, I believe, on our Did time we talk travel? about it? I think we talked about it with the Nerd Trek podcast. Because that was the one where Data was like... Oh, you're right. Okay, yeah. So yeah. we go... Please, yeah, go listen to Contagion. Yes, Contagion. And there's... I just see a picture of Data's head getting zapped by a... Classic. <laughs> a, con- a console. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah. So this is another thread that they pulled from the next generation to appear. And it does make sense that the Iconians, who were so powerful, would have a doorway in the Gamma Quadrant because they ruled over everything. Yeah. And so basically, this faction of Jem'Hadar have killed their Vorta, who ruled over them. And they are free, just running around, and they're trying to get this doorway to work again. They're going against the Vorta and against the Changelings, and they want their own power. They're fed up with being slaves. So I'm kind of like, woo, that's cool. But the fact that they're trying to power this doorway so it works so they can take over the galaxy slash universe is like not woo. Yeah. Not amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Weyoun, I believe this is four. Four, yeah. This is our first introduction to him. Mm -hmm. He meets Cisco and he says, I want your help capturing these rogue Jem'Hadar and... We're going to train your crew, and we're going to basically set things back in order. And I was shocked that Cisco agreed to this. What the heck? Why would he? Why? But, uh, I think it's yet again sort of the saving Gold Dukat because he's trying to prevent something bigger. And that's the problem with a lot of the stuff in this war is that you have to be strange bedfellows sometimes with people who you don't want to be. Especially Rogue Jem'Hadar with a doorway to the galaxy is very frightening and could be potentially very dangerous for everyone. And so I think it is a similar thing that Cisco has to do a lot. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is like join up with one enemy to take down now perhaps a more powerful one. Yeah. That's incoming. Yeah, yeah. well, it's really cool and an interesting dichotomy because we have these Jem'Hadar training the Starfleet officers in the holodeck and everything, getting ready for this mission. And I think some of them are skeptical. Some of the Starfleet officers and Wayun are skeptical that the Jem'Hadar will follow through and thinking, oh, they might join them. And the Jem'Hadar are adamant saying, no, victory is life. <laughs> Like, we are dying for the Founders, and we are dying for the Vorta, and that these rogue Jem'Hadar will be taken out. Because, you know, the Jem'Hadar who were serving with Wayun are very loyal to him. And Wayun commands them with the same sort of disrespect that a lot of Vorta command the Jem'Hadar. He has a lot of snide remarks about them. So much so that they kill Wayun Ford in this episode. The Jem'Hadar at the very end of the episode just points his phaser at him and shoots him and vaporizes him. Yeah. Well, and I thought it was so interesting because from my points of view, the Wayun Four versus First, the leader of the Jem'Hadar, mm-hmm could not be more different and you see them i was gonna say rubbing shoulders no you see them <laughs> butting heads you see maybe. them butting yeah. heads yeah you see them butting heads the entire episode and so i was shocked that he ended up killing Wayun because that's exactly what these rogue jemhadar did but it sounded like 
at the end of the episode, you know, they are able to take down the base and destroy the gateway, which is what they wanted to do the whole time. Mm -hmm. But what first first wants to go further, and instead of leaving the planet, he wants to hunt down every other Jem'Hadar and murder them who went rogue. And Wayun just wants to go home, so that's why they kill him. So, yeah, I was shocked that that occurred. (laughs) Well, and I think it's such an interesting way of writing this because we think that's the end of Wyoon. We think, oh, he was just a one-off character. Jeffrey Combs just guest starred for this episode. We also learn a lot. I want to briefly say that Jem'Hadar, we learn, are bred from birthing chambers in this episode. And we also learn yep. that if they live till 20, they're considered elders because a lot of Jem'Hadar barely live past seven or eight. And this is the nature of their addiction to the white. If they run out of it, they die. Um, also, the nature of just their jobs and their lifestyle is literally going into battle and wherever you are. Ooh, that's going to be exhausting. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. I just think it's interesting. This introduction to Wyoon I thought would be much more grand and exciting because the introductions to Gold Ducat and Kai Wen and all of these other mega villains are intense and build to something bigger. And so to see Wyun 4 just get killed, my first watch around, I remember just being like, okay, some rando Vorta just got killed and probably won't see him again. But alas, we do. <laughs> we do, yeah. Well, and I just want to mention that just to kind of wrap up our Jem'Hadar discussion, mm-hmm. that it's really interesting to see them serving along with the Federation because everyone on the crew of the Defiant is very nice to them honestly and you know Dax is engaging them in civil conversation but there is still issues which of course would naturally occur and I just want to have a little shout out to Worf because the Jem Hadar this whole time like in a lot of these episodes really want to see a Klingon yeah and so when they finally do see a Klingon they're disappointed because Worf is not as ruthless as they are and I just want to just send a little love to Worf because I feel like being the only Klingon in the Federation he is constantly expected to represent his entire race yeah and that's got to be so exhausting i just want to send some love to Worf and say that you are you and it's okay to be you (laughs) and you're also having to deal with warriors who fight without honor so that's got to be irritating you know the gem hadar have no honor as he says (laughs) yeah anyway if you watch this episode just kiss Worf for me because he needs it yeah Okay, so I'm really, really excited to talk about Treachery Faith in the Great River because this episode is freaking phenomenal. We get a lot of insight into the Vorta and into Wyun because at this point, we're going to skip over a little bit of Wyun 5. We've seen a ton of him. He is the longest lasting Wyun after 4. He's the one that we see through most of the series, but the reason we don't talk about him as much is because he just does sort of regular Wyun stuff. There's not a ton of remarkable Wyun moments in 5. I know that you guys probably couldn't fight us on this, but as far as our villain series goes we have to be pretty picky about which episodes we choose and so let's just say that Wyun 5 is just doing bad stuff leading a fleet of Jem'Hadar and adoring the founders that's sort of his mo (laughs) Wyun 5 was killed in a quote-unquote transporter accident there's a lot of mysterious circumstances surrounding this accident because Wyun 6 
and YN7 are very suspicious about this. I think it was the Cardassians doing, because the Cardassians are joining the Dominion, they become a part of it, we're gonna talk about Gold Dukat soon. I don't know about that, Rihanna, I have to argue. Really? I don't think it was the Cardassians trying to kill Wayun. I think it was maybe even higher than that. I think maybe the founders, mm. because Damar was supposed to be on that same transport with Wayun 5 and he didn't because he like left his keys at home or something and had to go back and get them like something happened where he had to miss that transport so I think because I don't why would the Cardassians try to kill Damar I don't think they would I think the point is is that Damar quote-unquote forgot his keys but that was a ploy to make sure that he wasn't on the transporter. But I oh. really like your idea too. Now I'm like pulled in two different directions because I think they both could be equally correct because either way, Wayun is kind of a chaotic element for the Dominion. He's very effective as a leader of the Jem'Hadar, but he also has a lot of ideas pertaining to the founders that don't align with Cardassian ideals and that's why I think they wanted him killed is because he worships Odo above anyone on Cardassia or any of the higher up in the Cardassian fleet and I think that could be dangerous for the Cardassians and for victory over the Federation is because Odo's a huge part of the Federation and he's not aligned with the founders and he's not aligned with the female changeling and so I think that that's maybe why he was quote-unquote killed in a transporter accident kind of thing but i do like your idea well and what we learn in this episode treachery faith in the great river is that wayun six has defected from the dominion because he sees that death is around him on all sides and so this is what makes me think that maybe it was from the dominion too i think mm. maybe he wasn't doing a satisfactory job and also damar so this is the only reason i'm just going to back up my theory is that damar is a straight-up villain he murders zial goldicott's daughter he is a villain but he's not on our greatest hits villain but we are just gonna you know mention him it's an important he element up, yeah yeah he's very important and he ends up turning traitor to the dominion and joins the federation he's the reason they won i think or a huge yeah. part of it obviously there's so many factors damar is very unhappy with his place in the dominion and he does not like the vorta he does not like the changelings he does not like even the higher up cardassians that he's interacting with and he's drinking all of the time and so because he's unhappy he doesn't like his life at all mm -hmm. and so i was just thinking that they were like let's get rid of Damar and Wayun in one slap and then we can get a new Cardassian because I feel like the Vortas I mean I feel like the changelings view Damar just as replaceable as Wayun replace him with another yeah. Cardassian clone you know Ashlyn that's such a good point wow you're kind of swaying me that's I really like your your idea you swayed me too I, I can <laughs> I can believe either theory. yeah same um, <laughs> but let's, let's continue to. with this episode yeah. so I do want to mention that because we talked about the Jem'Hadar who had a sort of DNA defect or that made him be able to survive without Ketracel White. Similarly, this Wayun has a DNA defect essentially that makes him want to defect from the Dominion and has the traits that the founders had not placed within the Vorta. So let's go a over a little bit of Vorta history here because this is endlessly fascinating to me. So 
turns out we we know from previous episodes particularly in our family episode we talked about how odo when he rejoins the great link he learns that the founders were uh, are a very paranoid species and they're worried about being taken advantage of and being used for other people's betterment and so in order to Osage their paranoia, they become what they most fear in other people, is sort of how I see it. And this is very true for the fact that this is decades ago. The founders were being pursued by another alien species, and the Vorta took them in and said, We'll take care of you, all of this stuff. And the Vorta were a very according to the founders, very low-level species. They survived on, like, nuts and berries and, like, were sort of just They were, foragers. like, apes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, not very developed, according to the founders. And so, as a thank you <laughs> for them saving their lives, the founders said, let's manipulate their DNA and let's make them some subservient to us and let's give them traits that will enhance them to make them feel happy about their lives and make them feel more powerful while also giving us someone we can manipulate and control to do our bidding for us. And they manipulated the DNA structure of an entire civilization of Vorta where they made their eyesight not very good because they don't need to see that which i think is hilarious because it shows that they don't have much clarity <laughs> they can't see yeah. beyond the founders literally they made their hearing very good so that they can listen in on conversations become sort of pseudo spies for people they can pick up information from small places they made their liking to nuts and berries stay the same and strong so that they quote remember their roots so they remember sort of the greatness that the founders imbued upon them they gave them strategic abilities but not enough that they could take over the founders so they're manipulating every single aspect of the vorda's dna including personality traits they made them very cunning very smart but like i said not smart enough to but docile too yes thank you that's the word i'm looking for brilliant yeah exactly so made them docile and also uh didn't make them artistic or creative and so that's another way to sort of hold them back to say oh you can't be creative you can't come up with ways to get ahead of us or to get out of this cycle uh instead you're just going to be good military strategists who can help us win certain wars and win domain over other places and so we learn all of this from Yun 6 because he's the defector he's the one who luckily contacted Odo and he was on a ship escaping from the Dominion and Odo happened to be around the area. I think it was sort of, oh, was it by no, accident or I can't remember? No, no. Odo, he had a contact from the Cardassian homeworld who is very trustworthy and said that someone wants to meet you. Mm -hmm. And so Odo went and picked up Wayun 6. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is wild. What a passenger. Oh, absolutely. And so... Uh, we also learned that the Vorta all have a kill switch implant, and that is used for when they are, quote-unquote, like, defective, like this Yun 6 who had sort of the genetic defect of wanting to revolt and wanting to have their own life. And we learn all of this from Yun 6 as he's telling Odo, this is why the founders are gods to the Vorta, is because they literally manipulated their DNA so much that the Vorta became the puppets for the founders. And... 
this is why every Vorta worships Odo because he think they think that he is on that level and he's a shapeshifter, so of course he's a he's a founder and he's a god. And Odo gets so annoyed by this. He's like, "Do not call me a god. I am a security officer," <laughs> you know. And uh, he doesn't want that massive role and this massive pedestal because it's not fair to. Odo either and it's not fair to the Vorta and especially to Wyun Six to have so much thoughtless devotion to somebody and Odo really sees that but Wyun Six really loves Odo he's like obsessed with him and and I really do like that Wyun Six is able to empathize with Odo and he says to him it isn't easy to turn your back on your own people and he understands this better than anyone him and Odo really have a kindred moment together because Wyun is also turning his back on his own people and on the other founders because he's choosing Odo to be that one founder that he's going to follow and he has this whole plan to make Odo the leader of the new changelings because he tells them the most he tells Odo the most critical information that there is a disease infecting the entire link the entire great link and that Odo is the only one who is not affected by this and we're going to learn why soon when we talk about the founders but I think that this is just this completely changes the shape of the war obviously is the changelings illness and that Wyun 6 is prepared to have Odo be at the forefront of like a new he calls it a new order which is a little scary because it makes me think of just <laughs> another type of empire that could rule but Wyun um, is thinking more think of, peace. of <laughs> it makes me think of Star Wars and the new order <laughs> so Ooh, clearly yeah. <laughs> um, clearly the Disney executives were watching DS9 <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i don't know do you, let's yeah let's talk about this i just this whole concept of yun six wanting odo to be this leader of a whole new civilization of like maybe peaceful dominion founder rule i don't know it's just interesting well okay a lot of thoughts Technically, the Great Link are all, you know, it's like one link. But then when one blob comes out, they're individuals. So there's no way to know. Like, it's not like they were just born, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. becoming an individual means that you're, like, being pulled out of the link for the first time. Like, what happened with Odo. Mm -hmm. And so technically, I kind of agree with Wayun. Technically... Odo is part of the beings who manipulated the Vorta's DNA because he was unknowingly of, like connected to all the individuals of the Great Link who did it. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I understand why Wayun is so obsessed with him. Um, also, I think that Wayun Six's vision for Odo is kind of exactly what happens in the finale. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, we're going to talk more about that, but I mean, the reason that the, the female changeling gave up and agreed to be tried for her crimes is because Odo was going to return to the great link to cure everybody and to show everybody that he had a different perspective, you know? Yeah. So you're so right. I, I, kind I didn't of, think about it that I, way, but yes. I think I think this is exactly the seed for how the show will end is that Odo is not going to become the ruler of the changelings, but he's going to bring his perspective of the solids are not all out to get you. You guys are paranoid AF mm-hmm. um, to them. And they're going to understand because when they merge, you know, a lot of information is transferred. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, this episode 
is so interesting because we get this heart to heart with Odo and Wyun Six, and it reminds me because uh, at some point they're trying to escape the Dominion vessels that are coming after them, and so Odo hides literally in an iceberg, <laughs> and they have to turn off the engine and turn off life support and just get really cold together. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Odo is like freezing, stranded with so many people <laughs> in this show. <laughs> Literally, the amount of freezing, so, stranded characters in these yeah. in this Star Trek in general is just incredible. I know. I'm thinking of so many examples, mm-hmm. but so I they have a really nice heart to heart, and they really do get to know each other. And this is ultimately what saves Odo is that Wayun is just so obsessed with him, and he knows that. Well, well, first of all, I just want to back up and say the whole the only reason the Jem'Hadar are firing on them is because they don't know that there's a changeling aboard. Mm-hmm. But if they did, there's no way they would destroy the shuttle. Yeah, and Damar even if Wayun was on it. Yeah, and yeah. Damar is uh the one who made the order and even Wayun 7 agrees that it's for the best. Like it takes him a while cuz he loves Odo too, but he knows that Wayun 6 is so dangerous and what he could tell Odo, particularly about the disease, like he did could completely change well, the tide of the war. Not even about the disease. I mean, if Wayun 6 had, like, written out all of the, like, security plans for the Dominion. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I mean, that, is, I think, is what Damar and Wayun 7 are most worried about, is that their security will be completely revealed. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't end up happening because Wayun 6 realizes that the Jem'Hadar ships, once they finally catch up to the iceberg, <laughs> um, they then Wayun 6 knows he has to deactivate himself and kill himself and that's the only way that Oda will be saved and so that's what he does and I just I think that this was a really we got a really some precious moments with Wayun 6 and we really got to see like I was saying in the beginning a totally different side of the Vorta that we have not seen with especially Wayun 5 or 4. Yeah, and something that, again, I'm going to compliment Jeffrey Combs, that I feel like every Wayun does have sort of a different flavor, and that I can, if I pay enough attention, I can figure out which one is which, you know? I mean, of course with Wayun 6, but even, like, 7 is way more hardened than 4 or 5, you know? He's been through oh, way man. more. <laughs> but I do love that there's always a convenient nebula. You know, you got to have that and able to, in order to hide. It's essential. <laughs> but yes. shall we move up again into the final link, which is the Great Link? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. This is an episode, Behind the Lines, is one that we did not talk about in our family series, even though it involves a lot of Odo and female changeling times because oh it's very complicated and very problematic and yeah and we don't really uh, want to talk about family when they're like getting it on together you know <laughs> yeah, yeah we were trying to not include incest in our family series yeah that's as possible. a general rule <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay so on that note i guess let's talk about this I really hate this episode, and I don't want to talk about it, but of course, I just don't like the female changeling in general. First of all, it's annoying she doesn't get a name, similar to a lot of uh, female characters on Star Trek, do not end up even getting names, even if they're in huge episode arcs or major villains. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Rick Berman. Appreciate your sexism. Anyway, (laughs) sorry, I'm really spicy today. (laughs) No, Rihanna's out here firing, but not firing blanks. (laughs) 
fire and sh- fire and photons. That's what I'm firing <laughs> today. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's my rant today. My feminist rant. Um, but the female changeling, her constant goal is to get Odo to rejoin the link. I think that is her main source of uh, inspiration. I think that that is the way that she thinks they will absolutely, unequivocally win the war. And is to get Odo on their side because he, like Yun Six, has a lot of information about the Federation, and if he and she can manipulate him into understanding her side and to joining them, then the war is practically won. What do you do? You agree or? I don't think the war is practically won because I think Cisco and Kira learns in this episode to keep Odo at a safe distance mm. from the true plans and everything that's really going on. Like there's there's a lot of sensitive information that Odo does not know. It's a very good and point. And I think that's purposeful because he's very easily manipulated and in this episode he's kind of like baby Odo. He's so stupid in this one Ugh. because he does not understand. He he views the female changeling only as a mother slash mm, lover. <laughs> and he thinks, he's naive enough to think that he can change her mind on these issues which just had me thinking about a lot of problematic relationships where you think you can change someone who is fundamentally flawed. Oh, I can fix them. Like, yeah, no. that's literally what Odo thinks. Odo thinks, oh, I can fix this woman who's literally killed millions of people. <laughs> right. And yeah, which is just wrong. <laughs> I mean, bro, you have sex once and you think it's like the best thing. I don't, I don't know. I'm just like, okay, like it's not that good, but <laughs> like it doesn't mean betraying your friends, you know? Yeah, and especially Kira, is who is someone that he claims to be in love with for the whole series. Yeah. And, and all of his friends who have given him devotion and friendship and love. And while, because all of this is taking place while um, DS9 is occupied by the Cardassians. Mm. And so the only people aboard that are a part of our original crew are Odo, Kira, Quark... <laughs> Ram, yeah, Ram Ram and and Jake, and Garrick. Yeah. So we're operating at half capacity right now. This group of people is forming a little baby resistance, Mm -hmm. and they are trying to take down the Cardassians and get the stop the station from working, and basically find a way to break their power a little bit. And so this plan is essential to have Odo in it because he's supposed to turn off the security warning for when Rom goes in and like takes something out of the station. I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. And so, but you know what? Odo is so obsessed with linking with the female changeling that he does not turn off the security notification. And so Damar is taking Odo's place as security officer. And of course he finds Rom and puts him in jail. Yeah. So I do want to push back a little and give Odo a little bit of leeway because truly the villain here is the female changeling. And I think that she is so clever in her manipulations that I do want to acknowledge that. I mean, obviously he can resist and not have sex with her and like, you know, figure that out. But I think that he told her no. He said, no, I do not want to link with you. He didn't, you know, and then she keeps saying, but you do, but you really do. I think you should. And so this is, this is the type of pressure that he's feeling to be a part of something that he's been longing for for so long. And so to an extent, I do want to give him that grace to say that he 
first was not consenting and then from her push he did you know and I think that that is super manipulative of her and she knows exactly what buttons to push to get Odo to uh fall to her whims and yes it's very annoying that he doesn't follow through on the stuff that he said he would help Kira and Rom with but it is understandable that when she is tapping into this innate or into this desperate desire that he's had that uh, it's similar to someone like Lore, who manipulates Data for giving him humanity, giving him the emotion chip, you know? It's these kind of moments where you're pulling someone at their weakest, and that's what I think makes her such a formidable villain and someone who's really scary, is that, like, Odo didn't truly consent to this. She He just she just wore him down, you know? And, like, that's what makes her really scary, is that she's subtle enough that she can get under people's skin, literally, and <laughs> she can... Uh, she knows Odo particularly, especially after they linked the first time and then when she rejects him from the, uh, not continuum, from the Great Link and all of this stuff that, um, it's frightening. It's frightening to see how with such ease she's able to take Odo over and ruin their plans on, on Deep Space Nine of Resistance. Yeah, well, Rihanna, thank you for giving that context because now, yeah, I'm totally with you. I'm yeah. still frustrated with Odo, Absolutely. but you're right. Yeah. She she is an absolute mastermind, and this is the reason why she's leading the whole Dominion mm-hmm. is because she is able to think about all these moving pieces at once. She, I mean, she has to be a mastermind if she's manipulating an entire species of Vorta who are manipulating an entire species of Jem'Hadar. You know, I mean, she, like I said earlier, she's ruling through fear and power and giving people just enough power to make them feel useful and worthy but not enough or but but also not enough to keep them docile you know and she's just giving people the taste and that's what she does for Odo and power can be very intoxicating and it's something that we are going to talk about with Kai Wynn here any minute <laughs> so yeah uh yeah power is a very dangerous substance in Deep Space Nine and it is abused constantly Absolutely. And I just want to say, if you don't have a friend like Kira Norris in your life, boy, you better get one. Yeah, because find one. Because she is someone who, she's the type of friend who will tell you, hey, Odo, you're literally merging with an intergalactic warlord. Don't do that. Yeah. And she is constantly reminding him of who he is and saying, you don't need her. You don't need to be linking with her. And you shouldn't. It's dangerous. And she's dangerous. And Kira is uh, such a constant, solid, haha, because she's solid, but such a a solid source of support for Odo that this betrayal really is tough for her to stomach. And I think, like what I was saying when we first started talking about this episode, this is why later on, Sisko and Kira both learn, we can't really give Odo this type of information because he's vulnerable to the changelings. Which makes sense. I mean, if I was the only one of my species and in a similar situation, like, oof, it would be really hard. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get to one of the most hated people on Deep Space Nine. Kai Wynn. Or just just Wynn when we first meet her. Just Vedic Wynn. Just Vedic Wynn. Ugh, I wish she'd stayed that way. (laughs) (laughs) I hate her so much. She's the worst. (laughs) He's the worst in the world. (laughs) Okay, so we're starting with Hands of the Prophets. We're going way back, guys. We're going way back. (laughs) Yeah, so in this episode, Hands of the Prophets, I gotta say the first note I wrote down was Dolores Umbridge, I mean Kai Wynn, tries to talk about religious blasphemy. (laughs) 
<laughs> because this is the thing that I find really similar and something that is effective when writing villains is like with Dolores Umbridge and J.K. Rowling's uh, writing and, and Harry Potter <laughs> and like with the writers on Deep Space Nine who wrote Kai Wynn. Similarly, they're both coming into a classroom setting and telling people how the government or the religion should be teaching their kids. And this is hitting people right where it's very controversial where you're attacking young kids and they're learning and it's very similar to the scopes monkey trial i was thinking about in american history where a lot of religious leaning governors or people and parents essentially were trying to make sure that evolution darwin's evolution was not taught in schools and instead religion and like god and creation God's creation of humans and everything was taught in schools and there was this whole trial about like that went to the Supreme Court about what should be taught in schools and if religion should be involved in that conversation and I freaking love the beginning of this episode because it reminds me so much of that and of course reminds me of Harry Potter where um, Bridge is telling uh, Harry that he can't tell the full truth about Voldemort returning and all of this stuff so I think that it really like makes me so viscerally angry that Vedic Wynn is coming into Keiko's classroom, telling her in front of all these other kids, undermining her in front of, in her own space, telling her that she is teaching these kids blasphemy. That is a huge impact, especially for the Bajoran children in the classroom who are, Bajorans are generally very religious. That is the culture that uh, they surround themselves with. I mean, like we've talked about before, if you knew your gods existed, I think a lot of us would be pretty religious. Yeah, the beginning of this episode right away shows how dangerous and how cunning Wynne is as a character. Yes, you're absolutely right. And my first notes actually were, Wynne is effing up this class. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah, and I agree. Like, right away, she's someone similar to Dolores Umbridge. She's someone who presents herself as being very smooth and sensitive and kind and doing everything for the children. But in reality, she's literally hiding behind the children. And I say literally because in the middle of this episode, the school is bombed. There's, there's a school bombing mm -hmm. on DS9, which is like very like hard for me to see, honestly, because of all the school shootings that have happened in America. Mm -hmm. And when I first saw this episode as, you know, like an eighth grader, early high school back in 2010, I did not feel the same way because mm -hmm. there weren't as many school shootings. And so seeing it now was really hard to watch. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh, yeah, it just, it reminds me that fanaticism in any form is so dangerous. And in this case, we know at the end of the episode that she planned all of this. This was all a part of her plan. So the reason I said that she literally hides behind the children is after the school is bombed, she gathers everybody, the, the Bajorans and the Federation children, and she literally has them all standing in front of her and she's preaching to them about, oh, it's so sad the school was bombed and maybe if Keiko, Mrs. O'Brien, 
can be reasonable. Perhaps we can reopen the school and rebuild it together. And literally, she's hiding behind the children. Mm -hmm. And their cute little faces are looking at Keiko like, yeah, can't we just all figure this out? Yeah. But she's making the issue seem black and white when really it's incredibly complex. And we see ripples of this happening throughout the station because Kira it kind of agrees too that maybe we shouldn't teach about the wormhole at all in class and maybe there should be separate classes for the Bajoran children versus the Federation children and one that's more religious and one that isn't which, which is ugh, yeah uh, that's yeah, a slippery I mean, slope are you kidding me that is like the reason that Brown v. Board, again, another very famous Supreme Court trial of segregation in schools, you know, was such a contented issue. And I just want to say, too, that Wynne took away the Bajoran kids. She said, if you want to learn, like, the real history or whatever, you'll come and come with me and I'll teach you about the prophets and how they created the wormhole and they see the ships have safe passage through it when really it's just, like, tachyons and <laughs> stuff like that. Like, the prophets don't have a hand in taking ships safely through the wormhole at all no they well they well, like in let, there, but <laughs> yeah they only created they only made the wormhole stable and then if a ship goes through they're like cool and then if cisco goes through they're like hey that's our emissary yeah <laughs> hey let's have a little yeah. chat with him yeah <laughs> yeah so it it creates a very slippery slope and it causes a lot of division amongst the people on ds9 which already it's pretty divided so this is way back in season one episode 19 so this is towards the end of the season this is by no means a united station at this point and so win is just planting these seeds of deceit because her true goal is she wants to be elected to be the next kai and right now vedic barile who if you you know if you know ds9 he's very prominent throughout the series vedic barile also appears in this episode he is the one who is most likely to become the new kai and i kind of view all the vedics kind of like senators mm -hmm. sort of where there seems to be a verdict from each area of Bejor and then they vote amongst them to see who the next Kai is it's, and I think similar to like Catholic popes I don't know how popes are chosen or like papal uh oh, yeah. but there are a lot of religious orders that have like lower groups and then higher groups so that's also what I thought of. But I like your senator uh, analogy as well. Sorry to interrupt. I, no, that's great. Thank you. I only say senator because this is the government on Bajor is the Kai, is, yeah. is like the equivalent of the president or like the world leader. Very good point. Um, yes. And so it's it's separation of church and state does not exist because they're the same thing yes. on Bajor. And so... So Cisco, because he is so frustrated with everything that Wynn is doing on the station, trying to tear these people apart, he goes to Vedic Bryle and says, hey, can you help me out? Because this is really frustrating and you have a very similar view that I do, which is not this orthodox view that we should be teaching our children religious things in school and the Vedic Varyal's trying to just stay out of it and not get into it yeah but eventually he is brought to the station especially after the bombing so I should say Cisco goes before the bombing occurs mm -hmm. after the bombing he's like oh f I, I I should go show my support and actually when once again a step ahead of everybody else she has planted a spy into the federation so there she's a there's a bajoran engineer who's working with o'brien whose name is neela neela yeah 
So, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, O'Brien has an engineer named Neela who is doing a great job. She is a badass, and she's um, or, and she's she's just awesome. She's helping O'Brien do all of these things. She's seemingly, like, working ahead of schedule, doing things before he asks them. But he later realizes, because there is a, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out who did the bombing. Mm-hmm. And the investigation points to that it was someone who had O'Brien's access codes. And... And also, there's, like, a murder on the station, which is unrelated, but oh, this yeah. guy gets murdered because she, the, because Neela accidentally, like, kills him. And so, uh, she has O'Brien's access codes, and that's how they find out that Neela is actually the person that Wynn has recruited to kill Vedic Burial when he appears on the station. Because Wynn's plan all along was just a ploy to get Burial to visit DS9. It would look like he'd be killed by a religious fanatic who was really passionate about the school bombing and what was going to happen with the kids. But Cisco hears through his comm badge that Neela is probably the guilty party and he sees her she has a phaser in the crowd when Burial is speaking and Cisco is able to save Burial and save the crowd <laughs> from yeah. being stricken by a, another fanatic so it is really sad to see that Wynn does not care one scene where Wynn is talking to Neela about her role and saying like you have to kill him and Neela's like but I'm just going to be caught and go to jail, like, and maybe executed. Like, doesn't that matter, like, to the prophets? And Wynn's response is, some things are more important than our lives, basically. And that is just so gross, because Wynn does not care at all about this poor girl. She only cares about being elected Kai, and it doesn't matter who gets in her way. A tiny engineer is nothing to her in the grand scheme of things. Absolutely. And... I want to talk a bit, Ashlyn, you brought up so many good points, and um, the, with the school bombing in general, I want because she orchestrated this, this is the thing about Kai Wen, is she is the person behind the curtain, manipulating a lot of factors when it comes to her attempting to become Kai, and she, of course, is talking to Neela, and Neela was the one who bombed the school, and all of this stuff, and so... She is using this to her double advantage, essentially, because she's using another person, so it doesn't trace back to her, and she's using the school bombing to further her rhetoric about school teachings being only religious and all that, and trying to get Brile there. So she is working on these, like, multi-tiered levels of scheming that is so cunning and scary that she is able to think through all these steps to be like how can I manipulate the story to be in my favor and she really does gain the favor of a lot of Bajorans on Deep Space Nine so much so that Keiko is being refused service at different places like the little Jamja stick store (laughs) the guy who's selling the Jamja sticks doesn't sell to her because she is teaching his kids or this Bajorans blasphemy essentially and Keiko fights back by teaching the remaining Federation kids Galileo and about how he, you know, of course, was under house arrest, all of that stuff after he spoke out against the church. And Jake is shocked by this. I love that they did old Earth parallels to what was happening in the moment. And I love that Keiko used this form of 
she used resistance. Yeah, thank you. She used this form of resistance to show the kids that hey, this is this is like what was happening back on Earth, and let's draw parallels to it now and see how we can get through this. And I think it's just so smart that Keiko doesn't back down from this because then it would just allow Vedic win to win essentially and also the scene where Cisco is talking to Brile and he says oh you need to come and help us figure out the situation he's pretty much like you're a moderate middle <laughs> and I need another moderate middle to like reason with the orthodox viewpoint and all of this when is continuously talking about how it needs to go back to the old ways and we need to return to it kind of reminded me of that prophet guy who or the poet guy who came and was like oh but we should return to the old ways of yes um, it was classist of that too. views yeah. and all of this yeah and so that's another thing that makes her really dangerous is sort of the like this is the way it it should be run be just because it's in the old text or whatever and that can you know be sort of dangerous for progress and for importance of like cultural integration and uh community and all of that stuff but yeah i think that when making this public scene with Beryl is really showing how willing she is to get people into her favor by putting other people down and making them the villain and turning that on them. She was going to make Varile sort of this victim of just a crime that she was going to separate herself from and all of this stuff. It's just so smart and scary and that's why honestly if we're good to move on I think that her and Golducott are actually very similar and I know that we won't talk about Golducott quite yet because we have the circle episodes to discuss but it is a little scary to see these parallels here particularly later on when Gold Ducat is all up in the Paul Wraiths and all like excited about this um, because they both use similar types of religious manipulation in order to, I don't know, utilize people's beliefs and values to their advantage. I do think, I totally agree with you, everything you said was amazing. Um, I do think that Wynne is smarter than Ducat, though, because if you think about how she plotted this whole episode, she can literally be standing on the stage next to Beryl and not be suspect or found out at all about his assassination. Mm -hmm. Literally, she can have no part of it. She can just be standing on the stage and everyone sees, oh, she's innocent. She was just standing there. Yeah. So she orchestrated this whole thing so she wouldn't even be caught and Kira and, of course, Cisco, like the DS9 crew know what's going on, but to the Bajorans that are on the station and Lower Decks people, they have no idea. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of the episode, Kira was on Wynn's side and agreeing with her beliefs and saying, yeah, like, yeah, you're a little orthodox, but I do agree with you. Mm -hmm. And by the end, she's able to figure out, you are a snake. You planned all of this. Yeah. And Kira hates her for the rest of the show yes. after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, I, yeah, violently hates her. Yeah. Ugh, yeah, she's just the worst. In the Circle episode, once again, I did write down Wynn is such a snake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, Kira's hatred grows, of course, in this one because she's kidnapped by these, by this <laughs> <laughs> religious Bajoran sect. Sector. Yeah, sect. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, also... Uh, Wynn has a new friend in this episode whose name is Essa. So Essa is a very powerful figure in the Bajoran government and she is hoping that by, Wynn is hoping by attaching herself to Essa, she might get enough support to make herself become Kai. 
And we see in the episode that that deal is exactly struck where Essa says, if, if you like come vibe with me, I will make you the Kai because I have all this power. Mm-hmm. And so this is what we talked about um, a, a while ago. Now we're at like hours ago yeah. where the Cardassians are itching to start a war. This is the second episode of season two. And they are supplying weapons to a third party, which are then giving weapons to the Bajorans to fight back and create this group that's called the Circle, which is a terrorist group. Mm-hmm. Kai Wynn's role in this episode is, like you said, Ashlyn, just her determination to, to become Kai. I call her Kai Wynn, but she's not Wynn. She's not Kai yet. But it's crazy to see how far they go because they're willing to kidnap Kira. They're willing to pretty much break up Bajor into these sects that will attack Deep Space Nine and put the Federation civilians and members and uh, officers living on the station at great risk. Like, they could die if they stay on the station because of this dangerous group of Bajorans. They um, fizzle out the treaty between Bajor and the Federation, and so everyone's having to evacuate the station. Even Bajoran members who have maybe Federation spouses or have friends who are part of the Federation feel like their life is in danger if they stay on Deep Space Nine. Well, and also, isn't this the episode where Kira is actually replaced? Yeah. By a by a war hero from, he's like super awesome. He's like this cool cat Bajoran, um, <laughs> and he was a hero of the rebellion in the Cardassian occupation. And so he's a great replacement for Kira, even though no one wants to see Kira go. And so she ends up going down at Briel's invitation to Bajor and to hang out in the the monastery. Yes. So she's just in the monastery with Briel, and they're having like orb encounter sex dreams with each other, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, whoa, Whoa. like that's spicy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, this is where Kira gets kidnapped is when she's on the monastery, when visits and kind of threatens her low key, stay as many days as you like, even a week if necessary. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, stay here or we will be detaining you by force, (laughs) essentially. Yeah. This episode doesn't have a ton of actual Kaiwin in it, but it is important to talk about because she is literally starting this, like, organization that wants to take over all of Bajor and Deep Space Nine and return to these sort of uh, orthodox values like we were discussing in the last one. And... It's just no good. It's not a good plan. And luckily it doesn't work because once again, the Deep Space Nine crew, the senior officers, stay on board and make sure that Deep Space Nine isn't taken over and that Essa, Essa, <laughs> and that Essa's plot is discovered that he was working with the Cardassians. And that's a huge blow. Thank God that they were able to trace that. Well, and you know what? I don't know how much he... Because everybody knew, like, all the Bajorans knew that they were working with this third party to get the weapons. And so once this starts coming out, Kira and Dax run into the meeting happening with Essa and Wynne and a bunch of other Bajorans and say, we have proof that the Cardassians are supplying the weapons to the Circle. And so we have to have an investigation, essentially. And what is wild is that this whole time, this whole two-parter, Wynne has been buttering up Essa. And she's, I think, been playing weak 
because she has been sucking up to him and saying like, well, I'm just a nothing Vedic who no one likes and I just really need some support and I'm all alone. And so he takes her on and then agrees, I'll, yes, I'll make you Kai. I'll share the power with you. And then as soon as these facts come out that the Cardassians have been working with the Bajorans, she turns on him like that. Yes. And she immediately, she runs up to Kira and grabs the pad and says, oh, we will be happy to cooperate with you, won't we, Essa? And suddenly, because she is so willing to agree with the investigation, it makes him look so bad because he was like, no way, there's no Cardassians. It's impossible. Yeah. And so she totally threw him under the bus and this makes her look really good in yes. the the Bajoran people because now she's like someone who has rooted out terrorism yep and Kira and Dax's role is totally forgotten because this major political figure has now been the one to step out and say the circle is bad yeah absolutely and this is one of the reasons I think that her success is one when Shakar dies in the episode Shakar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, and then Wynn steps in as Kai, and that's when she becomes the Kai. And we didn't talk about that episode because it's just, you know, that's just another step to her that gaining happens. power. <laughs> yeah, she just becomes Kai and we all cry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, we have to take a little yes. Kai Wynn break because we will talk about her when we talk about Paul Wraith Ducat, but we got to start out with regular Ducat. <laughs> okay, so gold Ducats. Da -da -da! Um, I think, uh, Ashlyn, are you ready to talk about one of the most notorious villains in Star Trek history? Oh, yes, I'm so excited <laughs> and scared. <laughs> Ashlyn and I had a little saying when we were watching uh, Star Trek for the first time, we were watching Deep Space Nine, that we late Golducott because we love to hate him. <laughs> <laughs> so if we say late a lot, that's what we mean. <laughs> he really, like, sw he's always swinging the pendulum between, like, the most chaotic and destructive villain of all time to like, OMG, he's kind of funny in this one. Yeah. <laughs> or like, wow, kind of a homie. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, when he got kidnapped by the Maquis, you were like, yeah. oh, huh, this is weird. Yeah, or like after Zial dies and he goes a little bit nuts and he's talking to the wall of the cave with Cisco, you're kind of like, well, I feel bad for you, bud. But then you're thinking about the episode, things passed, and you're like, oh, wait, he might be the worst. <laughs> so, um, Ashlyn, I'm going to just give a quick little synopsis for this episode. Essentially, this is where there's a wild, I don't even know the science behind this, Star Trek science, where Dax, Cisco, and... Odo! Odo! No, and Garrick. Oh, Odo. Okay, it is Odo. And right. Garrick. And Garrick. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. So Dax, Cisco, Odo, and Garrick are coming back from a mission. And they get some weird things going on with their brain, where their brains are projected into the bodies of Jorans during the occupation on Empachnor, which is Deep Space Nine, right? It's not, it's, it is Empachnor, it's not Terachnor or anything. Yep. Yes. Terachnor is the Paw Wraith party. <laughs> right, yeah, Paw Wraith party, cool. <laughs> so... Uh, we don't know how this happened. This wasn't a part of our time travel because it's an anomaly, and even Bashir is befuddled by this. So, <laughs> yeah, no one knows what's going on. Yeah. This is, the writers were just like, "It happened. Don't don't think too hard about it." <laughs> yeah. And Odo is starting to remember this era because Odo, as we may recall, had a 
history with M. Pachnor because he was on the station during the occupation and doing security stuff for the Cardassians and straddling that line between good and evil, <laughs> essentially. I mean, if you want to look at it in black and white terms. So uh, we learned that these three, or no, that these four people that they are embodying were accused falsely of an assassination attempt, I believe, and yes. were executed. So this happened quite too frequently during the Impact Nor days during the occupation because Cardassians were occupying Bajor and they assumed all Bajorans were terrorists or just not worth their time. Either way, it's awful. And so we get a glimpse at Dukat and his desire for a companion, a Bajoran woman. As we see in the episode uh, Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night, we see it in many times we hear about how Dukat took women to his bed, essentially, and to his um, like war room and stuff, Bajoran women, as both a way to have companionship and perhaps as a way to assuage his guilt or to feel like he was a part of the Bajoran struggle. It's just awful. I mean, all everything about that is just unbelievably horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I have to say about that part of the episode. <laughs> We see it in this episode because he takes Dax away. And part of this weird anomaly is that they see each other as human, uh, changeling, Trill, uh, Cardassian, like Trill. They see each other as their own species. Everybody on the station sees them as the bodies that they're taking over, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to look at it. And I actually think it's easier to view this episode as sort of a, what, what's the Charles Dickens Christmas yeah, episode? Christmas, Christmas Carol. Carol. Yeah. yeah, if you kind of view this like a Christmas Carol where it's Odo is the one who has to learn a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and these people are unfortunately thrust back into the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah, the ghost of, <laughs> um, of uh, occupations past. Yeah. Yeah, and so Gold Dukat takes Dax to be his Bajoran lady. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, so, real quick, uh, he talks about it to her. Um, first of all, he's very belittling to Dax and everything. And he talks about it like he's being kind to them. He said, he's, this is a kindness I'm showing you. And I, I want to give you all the food you can eat and all of the love that I can give and all this stuff. But it's just, ugh. Anyway. Yeah, well, and also what's gross about that, too. So Dax is doing a great job playing her part because she's smarter than him yeah. and is able to play him really well. Eventually, she is eating the food that she's giving him. And one scene I just thought was so nasty is she's eating her food and he's like, oh, you finally found your appetite. And she's like, yeah, well, I don't get to eat this well very often. And then Dukat comes up and starts eating the food off of her plate. Like, he's just like, oh, I'm just gonna, like, have a little snack, you know, which is which is something that is very commonplace. Like, at least in our family, sometimes it's like, I kind of want your fry, so I'm gonna steal it, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, do you want to taste my thing or whatever? But when you are a Bajoran woman who Dax is like pretending to be, who has been through the occupation and probably hasn't eaten in a long time, especially not eaten well, to have Dukat further show you his power by eating off the plate of food that he just gave you, to me was just like so gross. Ugh, yeah. It just shows you like that's all you need to know about what kind of a Cardassian he is. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, so um, the other, like, subplot of this episode we can talk about a tiny bit, but essentially Odo is starting to remember what went down with these people who were wrongly accused, and he learns that they were innocent, and so Odo allowed them to be executed seven years ago. Which, if you think about it, seven years is not a long time. Like, that's not, this was not far in the past, and that's what makes it all the more scary and all the more tragic is that Odo used to be in the thick of that, of this intense, horrible occupation, and he, it's so hard to explain, it's hard to unpack in a way that, like, I can articulate well, but Odo is essentially learning how many people did I send to death who are innocent, and how many people got executed just because they were Bajoran, and just because they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or whatever it may be. And so this is a very harrowing experience for all of them, particularly Odo and um, and everything, but also I think even for Garrick, being treated like a Bajoran, being a Cardassian, and being sort of also straddling the line between good and bad often, and between... Uh, working for the Cardassians and working for the Federation or Bajor shows a lot of the dichotomy within themselves. And that's what I really appreciate about this episode. And we're also, of course, given another glimpse into Goldicott and the terror that he invoked in people, particularly the women that he chose as his sort of comfort women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and he says that all the Bajorans are his children, which is just so messed up because so okay you're like working people to death in the ore processing center like so you're just like killing your children in that way too yeah exactly but that's how he really sees it in his mind and this is a common theme we're gonna see throughout all these Dukat episodes is that he wants people to thank him for not making the occupation as bad as it could have been he in his mind says he spared a lot of people and i think really he only spared these women like these comfort women and he wants a big thank you from that yeah so yeah we're gonna see that a lot yeah absolutely and he has a lot of false views of how he thinks the occupation went obviously because he's not a bajoran he wasn't being persecuted and put into camps and things like that he was sitting comfy directing fleets directing troops to rule over the bajorans for 50 years yep yeah so yeah anyway (laughs) (laughs) um i don't know if we should have kept gold ducat last (laughs) (laughs) at least we get to talk about what you leave behind last so we get some some semblance of some gratification yeah Yeah. Um, okay so the next one a Time to Stand is uh, the another episode we watched of Gold Ducats. So uh-huh. in this episode, we're not going to get deep into the time period where the Cardassians took over Deep Space Nine again, but this is essentially this era of time where all of the Federation, all of our main Federation officers had to leave yeah, on like, the Defiant. Like we talked about with the the change, this is when the changeling ladies on board. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. before the uh, Defiant is able to retake the station and all of that. So yeah. in this episode, we get to see a lot of Kira and Golducott's interactions. And again, they're just as sickening as normal. Like every time Golducott and Kira interact, Golducott is constantly gaslighting Kira and saying, "You're being unreasonable." Like you said earlier, Ashlyn. 
I made the occupation easier on people that could have been way worse. Like, also, it's so disgusting because Dukat is constantly making a move on Kira as well, thinking that he, which we have to remember, he used her mom as a comfort woman and that she was, and Kira brings this up quite often when she learns the truth. She says, you put my mom through hell, essentially. And he says, I saved your mom and I, she loved me and Kira says maybe she convinced herself that she loved you, but I I think that that's what a lot of women had to do with Gold Ducat or with any um, comfort women that had to be the right-hand people for these Cardassians. They had to convince themselves just to get through it, you know, just to feed their families and give maybe their children or their spouses or whatever a better life. And it's an incredibly beautiful sacrifice and I just want to acknowledge that but just the, the thought that Golducott is so blinded by the fact that he thinks he's this kindly father figure savior person who helps so many Bajorans really shows how naive his viewpoint was on the occupation. Absolutely and I yeah I just want to continue just saying like I'm sorry to all those ladies we see uh in the episode which we talked about in the family series where uh we know that Kira goes back in time and sees that Gold Ducat is uh with her mom we see that Kira's father reports and says that Nerese has started gaining weight Mm -hmm. and she is being fed now because of what you're doing and so yeah it's just I I just hate Ducat so much (laughs) yeah Absolutely. The whole moment where Gold Ducat and uh, the Cardassians and the Jem'Hadar and Wayun are taking over the station is tough to watch because Kira is having to be confronted yet again with her past and with the horrors of the occupation. And I just love, like we talked about their little resistance group they start building up, especially with Jake being a reporter. You know, he's really trying to get the inside scoop all the time and all of that. It allows for Kira to start to fight back and work through some of that stuff. But yeah, it does bring up a lot for her, particularly having Gold Ducat there. And I think that that's something that's difficult throughout the series because Gold Ducat's always just around from the first episode, I think, is like a fabric of Deep Space Nine and of Kira's past and of the occupation because he's just always there. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, can you leave Kira alone, please? Like she's already dealt with so much from you. But anyway, that's just my rant about Goldicott. <laughs> yeah, well, and his goal in life is to bang Kira, yeah. I think. Like, that that's really what he wants. And that's why he continues to choose to have her around. Mm. So, yeah, like in the next episode, Covenant, he has been... Everyone... I Does he... Wait, they don't think he's dead. No, but Goldicott... That was Damar. Yeah, yeah, so no, sorry. as the war goes on, Gold Ducat sort of fades from his position. I think it's when it's when he, uh, oh, yep, okay, well, it's after Jadzia is killed, and when he opens up the orb of something. It's not the time orb, it's another one. Orb of knowledge, I, I don't know, one of the prophet orbs. Yeah. He opens up, and apparently he has a little um, second coming, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> he sees whatever's inside the orb and is changed by it. And so he starts becoming less and less interested in the Dominion War. And that's why Damar is starting to set up, step up into his place and become a, a bigger part of the war and a bigger commander. Because Gold Ducat is sort of fading into the background and a lot of people haven't heard from him or he's not continuing his post and stuff. 
Yeah, exactly. And so what he decides to do with all of his murderous energy is to create a cult. Ah. <laughs> ah. Okay. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> to each their own, I guess. <laughs> and so he goes to Empoknor with a group of people who follow the Paw Wraiths. Yeah. The Paw Wraiths are the antithesis of the prophets, so they are the ones who rule the underworld. But Dukat's reasoning for believing in them and w- the reasoning he uses to convince everybody else to join him is that the prophets turned their back on the Bajorans and let them suffer through the occupation. And Kira's response to this is the prophets have a path for us. Like they're, they didn't abandon us during the occupation. We just don't, it's not revealed yet, like what the path means. But a lot of other people are convinced by this and said, yeah, you're right. They totally abandoned us and we must be worshiping the wrong people. It must be the poverty that we should worship. Mm-hmm. And so he literally, he creates, it's, a, it's literally a cult where yes. they are all sworn a, a vow of celibacy. And in order to have a baby, they have to ask permission to Gold Dukat and they have to be deemed that their like marriage is worthy of having a baby by him. He controls like the full schedule. They're on Empaknor. They have services every day that he leads. And it is a nice community, but they're all like brainwashed. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. And I think there's so many deep ironies going on here. The first fact is that Golduka is the one leading all these Bajorans. And yes. that, like, they're obviously, it's good that they're not like, okay, every Cardassian ever is bad. But this is Golduka we're talking about, you know? I mean, you have to take him with like five grains of salt, at least. <laughs> because he... At least. Yeah, because he was one of the leaders of the occupation. He is so, so bad. And so then then the other layer is that Empaknor is an abandoned uh, space station, similar to Deep Space Nine, that I believe was lost by the Bajorans from the occupation. So I think it's like remnants of the occupation. So we're just talking levels of irony here that these Bajorans are going to look past because they believe in the paw wraiths and they and i think their response is an understandable response to what they may feel the prophets abandoned them or because gold after kira says oh the prophets had plans for us that's why they didn't do anything during the occupation gold says those words must sound so hollow when you say them i think to an extent i kind of understand that you know that like it does feel like why wouldn't the prophets especially since you know they exist why wouldn't they do anything for their own people you know but i don't think the the result in this is should be should be like let's go see dukat and let's go let this cardassian tell us how to live our lives and how to worship our gods essentially yes and what he has created here is a community of people who would do anything for him and that i think is one of the most dangerous parts is he has such a following that kira who by the way has been like beamed via transponder by one of her old friends that she knew during the occupation an old religious leader who has been serving the paw wraith since the occupation and then he takes kira to empaknor anyway so that's why she's on the station but she has a gun during the service she just like pulls a gun from someone's belt and is about to kill Dukat yeah and someone stands up in front of him and says no you have to kill me first and then like five or six or and more people turn around and protect Dukat this way and so then 
two of Ducat's Bajoran cronies like punch Kira out and while she's unconscious on the ground Ducat is standing over her and says now do you see how much they love me and for me like that is the whole reason he's doing this yeah sure he's a changed man he's had a second coming blah 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 there's no way this is his true purpose this is what he's wanted all along from the occupation and from his whole life he feels like he is now guiltless from the crimes that he did during the occupation because he's helping all of these Bajorans to see the truth. And most importantly, he's worshipped like a god. Yeah, well, and he says to Kira, because she's like, what about your crimes during the occupation? Don't they care about all the things you did to our people? And he's pretty much like, why don't you just let it go, essentially, to Kira? (laughs) And I'm sorry, just, oh, just casually, let it go that I occupied your world and practically enslaved your people for 50 years you know just like come on don't worry about that the episode does bring up an interesting point because the first five minutes are kira is at a service and odo's like oh honey what was the sermon about and she said oh it was about forgiveness and throughout the episode kira's friend the religious leader is saying over and over again kira you have to forgive and everyone's telling her you have to forgive and so then when gold ducat is saying to her you have to forgive me it's like it's kind of a knife in the gut because she's of course like she's religious and she's very spiritual and she wants to forgive people who have wronged her but for something like the occupation i don't know and i am not the person to ask about religion at all neither of us you know nope that's not our area so you know whatever your belief is like we respect it and you do you but like at least from my perspective i don't know if i could forgive gold ducat like yes i see his very many perspectives and who he is and to me yeah, I, I'm just with Kira on this. Okay, well, and if you hear purring, my cat Lily just joined us, um, and she's too cute to kick off right now, so. Um, but Ashlyn, I completely agree. I think that you really have Golden Cop pinned, you know? Yeah, he wants people to forgive him, and of course the whole literal using people as human shields and everything, he loves that, especially if they're Bajorans. So I want to talk about the baby here in this episode and yeah let's talk about the baby yeah okay so first of all Ducat this was one of the pregnancies that Ducat allowed in his cult in the Paul Wraith cult he said that these two Bajorans could have their their child because they their love was worthy or whatever and so turns out when the Bajoran woman has the baby it is half Cardassian and unfortunately they decide to have this birth take place i mean unfortunately for ducat and for the bajorans um, they decide to have this birth take place in front of everyone they show the baby at uh in front of the entire cult and ducat you can see is like mentally scrambling trying to figure out how he can spin this in his favor and he says that it's a sign from the paw wraiths that he is the true leader and that he will bring them to salvation or whatever because you didn't say the baby's half cardassian i did say yeah <laughs> oh you but did oh. i didn't say of course that ducat is the father yeah, of this child of i mean of course yeah. it's it's clear to anyone watching this and it's clear to kira who's there and it's 
pretty clear to the husband <laughs> of, the child, of, of the wife who had this baby. It's very clear that this is not his child. And uh, the look on her face, uh, Kira even says that when she sees that everyone just takes this lie from Golducott as gospel, you can see the horror on, Kira says, like, you could see the horror on her face that they all believed him without a second thought. And I agree. That was terrifying to see them all just be like, oh, wow, praise be. Like, can't believe the glory to the paw race that this child is half Cardassian. No, clearly not. <laughs> clearly no glory happened here. It was just Dukat literally having an affair with this Bajoran woman. Yeah, well, and Kira, Pa Wraith, bless her, because um, <laughs> she um, she is going around to the husband and to her spiritual friend, essentially saying one plus one equals two, guys. Yeah. Because Dukat, which she even said earlier in the episode, is famous for his appetite for women and lust. Mm-hmm. So, like, of course, like, that's a factor. And I was even thinking that before. I didn't remember any part of the baby when I rewatched this episode. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, vow of celibacy. That is really, like, crazy for Ducat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Oh, man. And, oh, man. Oh. Sorry. I just, this is just so wild. Right? And, um, so, obviously, that's one fact, is that Ducat is famous for this. And then also that she's asking the husband, Ducat and the husband, did you guys pray together? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, did you, or did Ducat and your wife pray together alone? And he's like, yeah. And so, like, duh. Duh. Duh, duh, duh. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> yeah. And then, so we see the scene where Golducott confronts this poor woman, this poor new mother, and says, I'm sorry for what happened that night. And she says, I've forgiven you. And so this whole scenario kind of sounds like rape to me. Yeah. Something that she didn't want to happen, but because he's such a powerful leader, maybe she felt like it's okay. Maybe she, she did no have choice. lust for him. Yeah. But it seems like she had no choice it seemed like it was him using his power to get to her and because he can't control his appetite for women it's so gross yeah and i think this is furthered from the fact that he doesn't want her to tell the truth that it's his baby and that he puts her in an airlock and is prepared to kill her and it's only because of kira's good timing that that she is able to be saved but she's in a coma and she's going to wake up the next day and so what Golducott does here is he says, okay, we all, because apparently he prayed all night to the paw race, wondering what he he's going to do. freaking out yeah. at this point. Yeah. He is freaking out. And essentially, he's praying to the paw race, but I think he's just trying to think of the best situation for him to get out of this. And he says, hey, we're going to have a mass service tomorrow where we're all going to take a pill that kills us all and that we will become quote, warriors for the paw race and leave behind their bodies. So he never said we're all going to kill ourselves. He says we're going to leave our bodies behind. So he's using this rhetoric that sounds very angelic, that sounds very spiritual and almost peaceful. You know, he's like, we're going to leave our corporeal forms behind to join our gods and that they want us here with us and that they're waiting for us and all this stuff to convince them. And every person is ready to take this pill to kill themselves and he's ready to commit this murder this mass mass suicide um and apparently even i was convinced for 0.2 seconds that golducott was going to take that pill with them and um and of course the pills knocked out of of his hand and he it he turns out he had one pill that was his like fake one that he was going to take and then watch them all die and the secret would be safe 
with them or you know because they're all dead and the woman is would have probably he probably would have killed her after so she never got out of her coma or whatever so it's horrible thing upon horrible thing going on here but at least it reveals to me that Dukat is not a changed man I mean that it did pretty much from the beginning but anyone who was questioning you know by the time he has that conversation with the woman and by the time he's trying to kill her and everything it's very clear that this is that his quote-unquote like ways haven't changed yes and i also thank you rihanna i also just want to note that of course this is definitely a reference to a real event that actually happened this is definitely based on the jonestown massacre which actually happened and the cult leader jim jones convinced all of his followers to drink kool-aid that was laced with cyanide over 900 people including 304 children killed themselves by drinking from this Kool-Aid. And it was because the cops were coming and Jones knew that he was gonna be found out. And so almost a thousand people died Mm. because of this. And so this is your daily reminder to not join a cult. Yeah. (laughs) And to um, use that scientific method to figure out if the baby is a miracle or just your cult leader's baby. Yeah, Um, (laughs) literally. (laughs) So yeah, I just wanna just like, wow, ds9 you know really bringing us back to like some terrifying american history in Mm -hmm. this episode (laughs) yeah Um, and it's an important reminder and i think something else we have to remember about ducat is the line that he says to kira your anger is a challenge and this is something that's so sickening about ducat is that he finds kira's anger as sort of just a playful rivalry between him and her and that he finds that as a challenge to convince her of his greatness and because he cannot help this desire to be loved by the the Bajorans and especially Kira I think Kira is sort of his prize like if he can win over Kira he can win over anyone he says if I can convince you that I am a changed man and everything then I can convince any Bajoran because he says you are the sort of stereotypical the everyday Bajoran you know that hates Cardassians and the occupation and all of that so oof that's just terrifying. A very horrible thing to say is that taking anger as a challenge and instead of understanding her and listening to her, just probably like with the Bajoran woman that he possibly raped, you know, that there is this idea in Dukat's mind that people's negative emotions are a challenge for him to get through to them or something like that. Yeah, instead of having like a drop of empathy. <laughs> yeah, just one drop. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. all we're looking for here. Not really. Well, we're looking for more, but <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, he's fully lost it because mm-hmm. he has a transponder stone and he's able to beam away and everybody is mad at him. They're yelling at him when they realize that he wasn't actually going to take the pill with them mm-hmm. and they are all kind of coming out of this trance of, uh-oh, like we've been brainwashed by Goldcott. Yeah. Whoops. A, a sad part of this episode is Kira's friend actually does take the pill and kills himself, yeah. which is just like so awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this whole thing is God. so awful. But okay, so now we are getting close, guys. We are cornering it in. So there have been a couple of changes in the war between Covenant and the next episode. We're going to talk about the changing face of evil. But one of the most important facts is that the Romulans have now joined the war. And this happens in the episode, It's a Fake! It's a Fake! (laughs) Um, 
in the pale moonlight and we're just going to briefly talk about it the villain we want to talk about is this romulan senator who comes aboard at cisco's request because cisco's trying to figure out how do we get the romulans to be active citizens and be team alpha quadrant and fight the dominion and he thinks maybe if we can fabricate a a piece of evidence that says that the dominion is going after romulus next then maybe they will join and so he goes he takes all these steps he hires this guy who's gonna like fake a holodeck program mm -hmm. to make it seem like it's realistic and most importantly he recruits garrick into the plan yeah so of course i don't want to call garrick a villain and we are talking about this in our villain series because of the importance of the romulans joining the war but i do want to talk a bit about garrick and his motivations in this episode and his ability to adapt to the situation because as we discussed he was a member of the obsidian order or allegedly he would say he's just a tailor <laughs> what do you mean or i'm just a gardener um, but anyway he was a gardener for the, for cardassia and he is essentially all along as cisco is being put through these hoops of lying and cheating and covering up the wrongs of men to <laughs> you know all, everything he says in his log at the end Garrick is pulling the strings. Garrick knows that this report is not going to be taken as gospel by the Romulans. He knows that they're going to figure out it's a fake. And they do, easily. This Romulan senator figures it out right away. It's a fake. And Cisco is found out. And so the Romulan is even more disturbed and against the federation in this moment cisco's like oh my god did i just push the romulans closer to the dominion with this act like it's such a tricky slippery slope here but garrick knows i think all along that this was going to happen and so he makes sure that the romulan senator was assassinated on his way back and makes it look like a dominion assassination which is so cunning and genius and horrible you know and so this is the thing that cisco is struggling with in this episode and in his log at the end he talks about how the worst part is is that he can live with it he can live with the death of this ambassador if it means that the romulans will join their cause and i think that this is something that i love so much about deep space nine is the fact that they can have a captain of the show be okay with an assassination if it justifies another huge faction joining their side of the war and it will save thousands of lives probably that the Romulans millions. have joined. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Millions. I just got excited. <laughs> millions. <laughs> Literally though, like it will save so many people's lives that the death of this one ambassador seems very small in comparison. But I don't it's just such an important episode to talk about within the villain series because it combines these motivations that are morally questionable and shows how many lengths people are willing to go to fight on their side of the war essentially and just how there's no way to truly know how many people make a difference in the war and Heike did Garrick turn the entire war Garrick and Cisco together like did they change the face of the entire war probably and now that it's mostly team alpha quadrant we got the romulans the federation the cardassians are kind of like shaken they're a little like what do we do because at this point um damar even is assumed dead and actually he is alive and turned traitor and the klingons you know so 
yeah, uh, this was a huge, huge moment. And also, I just once again have to say, it's just the best episode ever. So go watch it right now. Literally, go watch it right now. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> I literally, I've seen it so much and I was like gasping throughout. I was like, oh, whoa. <laughs> like, Especially the end when he looks right in the camera. I just, Avery Brooks, shout out right there. I, I actually had to pour myself a drink when I was watching it because Cisco's just pouring away during that. you know he's like i have to somehow get through this yeah especially when he erases the log i'm like okay take a drink for that but (laughs) yeah yeah uh okay so so, oh uh, man here we go we are really building up so now also speaking of people who have changing sides ducat has changed his face yeah and he is the face of evil is here and it's in the face of a bajoran now (laughs) Uh, so ducat is a bajoran these couple episodes where Dukat is a Bajoran must have been really fun for Mark Alamo because his makeup day went from like four hours of makeup to like two minutes of makeup. Putting on a nose and an earring instead. Yeah, Yeah. and that's it. Because we get to actually see like the actor in his like skin. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not in all that makeup. evil though. Oh, they're very good. Very good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so... I feel mostly bad for Kai Wen, and yes, she's Kai. She is really feeling stuck in her position as Kai right now because she is all on board with the Pa Wraiths and Ducat's influence on her. They're sleeping together. Ducat has become her closest advisor, and she feels like I'm just being a hypocrite. I'm I'm outwardly proclaiming my love for the prophets, but really I believe in the paw wraiths. She doesn't want to speak or be inspiring. She's just feeling very lost as a Kai. And Dukat is here and he says, hey, let's release the paw wraiths. <laughs> That's exactly how he says it too. <laughs> yeah, he's very excited. Ashlyn, I can't believe the words, I feel bad for Kai Wynn just came out of your mouth. Because I do not. <laughs> I, there is no point in this entire show where I feel bad for Kaiwin. She stabs no, someone I, in this episode. Yeah. A bloody knife yeah. is what okay. opens the Paw Wraith book. <laughs> <laughs> Blood from her most trusted advisor. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I guess. Okay. So this is just a rare situation where... <laughs> where the two most villainous people yeah. are now friends Literally. and especially to see like a Bajoran working mm-hmm. with a Cardassian I mean she doesn't know that he's a Cardassian right now to see them working together is so awful and disturbing it's horrible and, yeah yeah and it really does make me remember that Kai Wen is smarter than Dukat because yeah <laughs> sorry I just gave Ashen a look like what <laughs> <laughs> I guess right now when we're faced with who's better in the showdown, I'm going with Win. Like she has a little bit more. Oh my God, Rihanna! <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, 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 your opinions are very valid. I'm very curious to hear them. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, so. I guess I just, I'm empathizing with her because, like, I understand being stuck in a rut, and it's tough. It is tough, um, yeah. Yeah. It's tough and... when you just want to worship evil all the time, and you can't outwardly. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks being a low-key Satanist, you know? It's hard out there. <laughs> yeah, when you're the Pope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Kai Wen is like locked in her room studying all day. She's had her advisor bring her these books. This poor advisor. <laughs> this poor guy. He's, he's so sad because every time he brings more books, he's saying things like, the other archivists are getting very disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because these books haven't been removed in 700 years, my people. That's a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And the Palrates are locked in these fire caves for a reason because that's what the prophets did to them. Mm-hmm. Because they were like Roman free causing destruction and then the prophets locked them in these rocks Mm -hmm. and so these books are instructions on how to open up the caves and let the Pauris free oh so yeah Rihanna as you said when Ducat has an interaction where this poor like assistant guy and he like knocks him out and takes the books back because the Kai has fallen asleep studying which like I also can relate to I've done that a lot (laughs) oh yeah who has it (laughs) You just fall asleep on your evil tomes, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He takes the books back to her and wakes her up. And then the guy comes in, the advisor comes back, and that's when she snaps him and the it's all revealed. So, oh man. So I think now, here we go. We're just going to jump to the finale. The Dominion is destroyed. Whoa. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) Hang on, Ashlyn. Oh, okay. I'm very excited that you're eager about the Dominion being destroyed, but I do want to bring up really quickly that Damar and his realization of the fact that the Dominion has taken over Cardassia, he has a really great line where he says, our allies have conquered us without a single shot. We're talking about how Damar is a turning tide, Garrick and the Romulans joining, all of this are turning tides, finding out that the founders are sick. It all brings up to this where Damar joins Starfleet allies like Kira and Garrick to uh, start up a rebellion in Cardassia. So that's happening while the female changeling is like withering away in the corner and while Wayun is struggling to keep control of um, of Damar and everything and of the uprising factions. But I think it's so interesting because they join not, Green Not forces. Damar. Not Damar. But the other replacement Damar right. Re- guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Controlling replacement Damar and trying to yeah. figure out where real Damar is and all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that like it's it's just really fascinating to see all these moving parts because they've now joined with the Breen who are very like kind of like the Jem'Hadar they just attack and kill and don't really care as long as they have someone to follow and and worlds to rule so uh we see that uh this is all coming to a head while Golducott is just chilling in the cave with Kai Wynn Yep, crazy. It's cr- it's crazy because Ducat has been such an important role up until the last season mm-hmm. with the war, and he doesn't even know that this is going no, on. No, he doesn't know Cardassia is an uprising. He has no idea. No, and the Kai also has no idea. She's just like sheltering in like on herself. She's not letting any other news get to her. She's just like chilling and in the finale, she and Ducat decide to go take a hike to the caves. Yeah. And, and this, this is, is the same day that the Federation is fighting the final battle against Literally. the Dominion. Yeah, and <laughs> also I want to say that at this point, Wynne knows that Ducat is Ducat because the book advisor figured it out before he got stabbed, and so she is willingly going with Ducat knowing his true identity and knowing who he is and his intentions, but at this point she's going to like well, I'm already riding this train. I might as well. Okay, so this is why I feel bad for Wynne. Because she has been betrayed and 
she i mean it's gross to like uh, to know that you've slept with gold ducat yeah like, that's horrible oh, no that's yeah. really rough <laughs> um, <laughs> i do feel bad about that anyone who sleeps with gold ducat i feel bad for them so <laughs> yeah me too yeah and so like that is really rough and then also but the thing that's totally i can never forgive her and she's just the worst because she still goes up to the fire caves with him yeah. and something in her heart is telling her that yes for some reason because she's still very spiritual even if it's poverty spiritual she thinks that this horrible Cardassian has been brought into my life for a purpose and it's all leading up to something and so despite everything despite hanging out with her worst enemy she is going to team up with him to go do something that's even bigger than themselves yeah yeah, I think it's sort of the same thing again where she thinks the ends justify the means and she's teaming yes. up with someone who, yeah, exactly. Who's... Well, and also, to be clear, like, the person who released the Paw Wraiths, they're both assuming is going to be, like, the king of the Paw Wraiths or, like, have great power in whatever ruling class that the Paw Wraiths establish on Bajor. Yeah. Her and Gold Dukat have discussions like, well, what's the point? Like, if kill everyone on the planet, then who will be left? And Dukat's... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and Dukat is like, well, it will be a new Bajor and we'll be able to be in control of how the planet goes from then on. And unfortunately, that is a satisfactory answer for Kai Wen. Yeah, what? <laughs> She's like, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds right. Yeah, exactly. And when I really like this symbol because when casts away her robes and she says she's shedding herself of the prophets and this is when she's fully committing to the paw race and to Dukat is when they're in those caves. And uh, it, that's a huge thing for her, shedding her actual, like, religious symbol of the robes and her, like, weird hat, you know? I'm like, whoa, this is this is a big deal for her and it's showing her full commitment. And that's scary. I thought that scene, despite it being pure evil, yeah. it was actually <laughs> really beautifully done because you see her, she's undoing her hair, which we've rarely seen before. Mm -hmm. She's completely herself and she's laughing and yeah. she's like giggling and she's just overcome with joy. Yeah, and Dukat's Dukat, like, you're glowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that line like killed me. That oh was God. so funny. Right? They're both so excited because they believe and Dukat after all having undergone all of these like spiritual transformations, they both fully believe that they are about to fulfill their destiny. Yeah, and what's crazy is that they're both about to betray each other. This is the yeah. thing, is that, yes, Gwen is fully committed to the paw race, but she's not fully committed to Dukat, and that's when she shows her hand is when she turns turns out that Wynn is trying to use Dukat as a sacrifice and he quote-unquote dies we're like oh is he dead like he's just slumped over the cave um but turns out only to he is restored then by the paw wraiths themselves and then he's even more evil because he's imbued with paw wraith inside of him <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> well so yeah this this answers the question who is more evil Dukat or Kai Wen it's Dukat because even the paw rates themselves thought they chose the more evil person <laughs> literally and that's why I think Dukat is a little bit smarter and more cunning than Wen is because she thinks she's double crossing but he's already double crossed her like he has known from the start that he was just going to use her for the books and she thinks that they at least from the beginnings thinks they were a team so it's interesting to watch these two master manipulators at work against each other 
but because Kai Wynn was the one reading the text, she knew that there had to be a sacrifice, and Goldicott did not know. Very true. And so that's why she thought she could win above him. Is she did she totally underestimated the paw rate's ability to bring him back from the dead? <laughs> Are you telling me that Kai thought she could win? Oh, <laughs> I I can't really react to that pun. <laughs> anyway, back to menu. <laughs> So then Cisco's here. I don't know yeah. how he got there that well, fast, but he did. Also, don't forget, Kai Wynn, like, burst into flames. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> Does it because of Go, Go Lukat's power? He suddenly is, like, able to do, like, magic from his hands? Yeah. Um, I was actually getting strong Voldemort vibes from him. Yeah. Because Cisco appears, and I assume the prophets just like transported Cisco to the caves mm. because Cisco gets there within seconds yeah. of realizing that there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. And the prophets, they called to Cisco and said, Hey, it's time to fulfill your destiny. This is what we've been training you to do with your corporeal body for the last seven years. So, yeah. like, buck up, buddy. It's time to push Dukat into the fire. Oh, um, And so, anyway, so, but Dukat, so it's a Cisco versus Dukat showdown. And Ducat tells him to bow to him, which, first of all, I was, you know, as a Harry Potter freak, I was like, this is Voldemort. Literally. Um, and also, literally, Ducat makes him bow in the same way, where he, like, uses his, like, hand power to, like, force him down. Yeah. You, you could also say it's, like, the force, whatever. Yeah, it's like totally. they're, they're all using, like, some spiritual magic something to mm-hmm. force the other down. But I just had to make a joke that J.K. Rowling loves Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> With yeah, Umbridge so. and Voldemort? Like, wow. At least they didn't team up. That would be terrifying. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. But anyway, then Cisco is able to push him into the fire, and they both fall into the pit of flames. And what's most important is that the book burns up. Yes. Woohoo! Because that means it has sealed the paw wraiths into the caves once again. And now there's no book to even get them out. Yeah. So you're good. There's no more paw wraiths. Yeah. And there's no more Ducat. Yeah. But there might be no Any more Cisco. Mark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. So uh, the parallels I found at the end of this episode when um, they say Ducat ended up with the paw wraiths and Cisco ended up with the prophets. Because Cisco asked the prophets, he's like, and what of Ducat? Like, what happened to him? And they're like, he's with the paw wraiths now. And then, but they're like, we need to keep you. And so did Cisco die? And then now he's with the prophets? But he told but he Cassidy, yeah. because Cat he gets, like, a nice moment with poor pregnant Cassidy, mm-hmm. and he says, I will be back. It might be a year. It might be yesterday. Ooh. And... <laughs> That's rough. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I really felt for Cassidy, like, after having my husband just go through basic training and I couldn't talk to him for, like, two months was, like, really rough. So I can't even imagine not even being able to talk to Cisco for, like, a year. Yeah. And also i mean unrelated to villains but i can't help but think that the episode the visitor in season four which is so sad where jake grows old and there's an accident where cisco is like being snapped like a rubber band and he can only see him like once every like 30 years or whatever i can't help but think that this could be an unfortunate destiny for cisco is that he is no matter what timeline you're on he is not meant to grow up with jake and cassidy and their future kids and the prophets warn them you know yeah. that this is the sorrow that will occur but it's just sad to see that even in this different timeline where we got past the visitor and we were able to move on and have different seasons cisco is still not able to grow up with the family that he wants to have 
Wow, Ashlyn, uh, you just took that knife out of that poor bookkeeper's back and stabbed it into me. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just sad. Me too. And also, I'm furious that we have so much Star Trek going on after Deep Space Nine, and we do not know what happened to Cisco. We never hear. Come on. I need some reference in Lower Decks. I need something in... I don't know anything. I will literally, like, I would kill for some knowledge about Cisco. Maybe we can hope that in season two, Picard, Q just, like, drops a line that's like, oh, yeah, Benjamin Cisco's coming over from headquarters. I'd be like, oh, at least he's alive. (laughs) (laughs) At least this person that we've grown to love for seven years is alive. Jeez. Yeah, and how's, oh, God, how's Cassidy? Really, but, the, the villains were the writers all along for doing that to us. Yeah, so in conclusion, we won the war. And Woo! thanks to Damar and the dream team, Damar, Garrick, and Kira. And Woo! poor Damar lost his life in yeah. the battle. But thanks to them, they were able to take down the Dominion. And Odo was able to have a heart-to-heart with a changeling, like I already mentioned. Um, Odo's going to take her place in the Great Link. Mm-hmm. And he does so at the end of this episode. And then you cry the whole finale. Because yep. the villains were defeated. Woo! Yeah, exactly. And as Cisco says to Gold Dukat right before they jump in, you have a talent for picking the losing side. Yes. Ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that wow. was a phenomenal, <laughs> fun, long episode. Thank you. I'm hoping that you guys took a water break. We took a bathroom break. <laughs> hoping that you didn't, I mean, we hope that you listened to it all in one go, because that means you're like a, a mega fan. But <laughs> And you have unlimited stamina. Or maybe you're driving somewhere. Yeah. That would be good, too. Yeah, like this is a good road trip podcast. Yeah. It's going to be so long. I actually think that this will be our longest episode yet. And I think that so far, our villain series has a chance at being the longest series yet. Yeah. Just in terms of, like, minutes spent talking. (laughs) The family series was also quite long. Because we forced it into two parts sometimes for episodes. Yeah. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I have no regrets that we didn't split up these villains because... Every single person that we talked about today is so important to the plot of DS9. And wasn't it epic just really going on this journey, talking about how horrible everybody is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate you listeners out there. It's literally not possible without you, so thank you very much. And we have a watch list posted every time we do a new episode for villains. And so you can go and check that out, see our thought process of what episodes we chose for what villains and what baddies we decided to talk about. So I really appreciate all of you and we just love you and we're so grateful that you are coming here listening to us talk about how evil everyone is. Yeah, seriously. And we're not just saying that we appreciate you. Like, we really do. We get so many comments and messages and DMs from fans of the podcast and it makes us so happy to know that you are listening, to know that you care about these characters and love diving in with them as much as we do because we love making this podcast it's like seriously when we had those couple weeks of not recording or watching star trek both of us were very sad yeah (laughs) i was like i think we need to watch some more star trek soon because i'm missing it a lot (laughs) yeah like making this podcast has definitely been our creative outlet for this past year and we are almost coming up on our one year anniversary which is so 
exciting and we are halfway through the villain series we're chugging along and like i always say there was only happiness ahead Mm -hmm. for the dura sisters podcast and we hope if you can't get enough of our content you will go check out our patreon episodes we are slowly working our way through the animated series and we are excited to continue and also i just want to throw out that there is so much new star trek content coming to us in fact our mom texted us the other morning and she said oh i i have to finish next generation because then i have to watch picard to get ready for season two and i was like mom not only is there season two picard coming there is season two of lower decks dropping in less than a month prodigy is coming out at the end of 2021 season four of discovery is coming out next year guys (laughs) (laughs) this is amazing we are in such a star trek renaissance so please get the most out of your paramount plus account and go watch some star trek (laughs) yeah particularly if you're feeling it watch some of these deep space nine episodes because they are truly unparalleled and we can't wait for next week when we get to talk about voyager and the villains from voyager there are so many good people to hate in voyager so i'm very excited Yes, me too. Rihanna, thank you for enduring my refrigerator in this hotel. <laughs> Thanks for enduring um, the lily the time. <laughs> <laughs> we are just here to make podcasts for you no matter where we are. So yep. thank you for listening. And Rihanna, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the fourth episode of our villain series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the villainous characters in Star Trek Voyager. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, and Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. So far, we have covered these exciting podcast series like the pilot episodes, family, love and affection, and time travel. If you haven't heard a particular series, please go back and listen to any of these awesome episodes. The social media and marketing was done by me, Ashlyn Gelman, and Rihanna Hurd. Editing is done by Rihanna Hurd and Ashlyn Gelman. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Wars Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. I just got your text. I just want to watch episode. And, yeah, I just want to see if it's kind of like a, uh, I'll just text you about it. But anyway, um, hope your night is good.